Hello, and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, my name is Bill Borchard. I'm a screenwriter. Some years ago, I wrote a movie called My Name is Bill W. It was about the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous and was produced in 1989 by Warner Brothers and the Hallmark Hall of Fame. The movie starred James Woods as Bill Wilson and James Garner as Dr. Bob Smith, the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. The film also starred Joe Beth Williams as Lois Wilson, Bill's loving and caring wife, who was also the co-founder of Al-Anon. For almost 15 years, my wife Bernadette and I had the privilege of Lois's warm and close friendship. That is why, in developing this important film project, she generously allowed me to tape her remembrances of her and Bill's life together, the ordeal of his alcoholism, and the miracle of their recovery. This wonderful and historic lady not only gave me her confidence, but also her permission to share these cherished and intimate memories, both in the movie I wrote and in these treasured recordings, which I hope you will both enjoy and find helpful and uplifting. As Lois used to say, when people share in the fellowship, we hear the language of the heart. Here, then, is my dear friend, Lois Burnham Wilson. If I ask anything that's just too personal, just say no, and I'll understand. Okay. Um, I guess I want to know what it was like when you first met Bill. What had happened? Had you had a lot of suitors? Oh, I never had a lot of suitors, no. I had one or two here and there. But I never had a lot of suitors. But I was well on my way. My brother was always talking about this man, that this friend of his, Bill Wilson. Because he could do this and he could do that. And he was the other thing. And I was kind of intrigued by what he said. And then um, one day we met out in the lake. He was sailing. I have to go back maybe a little bit to tell you about the lake. Was it just a um, three quarters of an inch, three quarters of a mile long, of an inch long, mm. up in Vermont, where the Green Mountains and Stonic Range met, and there was an island in the middle. And he rigged up an old rowboat and put a sail, put a mast up in a sail. And he was sailing on the lake in the rowboat. And I had a St. Lawrence skiff, which is a neatly shaped boat that had a regular mast with it and a sail. So I had a very much better craft than he, than he did. So we got racing on the lake. We never really talked to each other. Oh, yes, I don't, I think we may have, but it didn't make too much impression on me. And Bill, and several times I met him and he didn't make too much impression on me, except that he was tall and thin. And of course he was very much younger. And then I don't know if it was that summer or the next summer, he was selling kerosene lamps and he was going on foot in the villages around if he could get a hitchhike, all the better, but he went on foot. And by that time I'd had a little, um, Tia, because I thought I ought to earn some money. And I had made what was called, what we called the Tia. Do you know anything about Manchester, Vermont? Anything about the... No, I... Well, Manchester, Manchester, Vermont is a beautiful 
old New England village, which has been a summer resort for many years. And uh, my family used to go there in the summer. My mother's, my mother's family owned a house. My mother was born in, in uh, Brooklyn, but her mother was born up there in Manchester, Vermont. And we children used to go up there every summer. But then Manchester got to be very social. And Dad Mother had a bungalow up on this Lake Emerald that I was telling you about where we sailed. So they got fed up with it, true social life, and took the kids up and we up to um, Emerald Lake, which is only nine miles away, so that we could have a, an outdoor, really, life up there. And yet we could go down to play tennis or golf or... or to dance in the evenings it wasn't too far to, to do that, so it was really an ideal place. So, this tea arbor that I had, I thought would be good because it was still the time when people had horses. And they would sometimes drive out in the afternoon and like to find a nice place for tea. And this was nine miles, which was a good drive for the horses. and. I thought it would be a good place to have them have tea. So we had built a, um, it was a platform, and then there were eight poles, I guess, four on either side, and a roof. And I got vines going up the poles, and we painted the, the fall green, and I had rustic furniture made. So I thought people would like to come out for a cup of tea. But I didn't put up any sign. I didn't do any advertising. I didn't get anybody hardly except the people that I just, that came because they knew I was doing it. But nobody, um, that wasn't primed, so to speak, <laughs> nobody. So, um, but I did have one customer. Every day, Bill Wilson. He'd stop on the way back from his, uh, selling airplanes. And we would have a cup of tea, and um, sometimes I get um, puff balls, mushrooms, you know, puff balls, and fry them up for him because he seemed to enjoy them. And we had very nice visits that way. So, what do you think he liked about you? That made him stop every day. Well, I I don't know what Bill saw me. I know what he saw in me later. Um, I think. Um, I don't know what he saw in him. Well, what did you see in him besides a kind of tall, slim young man with a lot of kerosene for years? <laughs> well, he was the most unique man I've ever seen. I hadn't had any temptations to marry anybody but others. I've had lots of fun with people, but I had never wanted to marry them with other men. Not too many of them, I'll say. But... Um, well, Bill was uh, was very different from anybody I ever met before. He had ideas. He was always intriguing. I mean, he'd talk about things that all kinds of things that I that surprised me. That different. I don't know. I participated draws two people together. I thought he had wonderful ideals. I just got got crazy and crazy about him. And what he found in me, I can't answer that at all. He was really quite young then, wasn't he? Yes, he was quite young. He was only 19 when we became engaged. Was he ready for marriage? Had he thought about it? 
No, I don't think he thought about it. I think um, the war came along, and that, um, of course, made a lot of people get married that hadn't been expecting to get married, I think. See, when you met, what, what year was that? Was that? The war was on in Europe. Um, yes. Um, we got married in 1918. Yes. Mm-hmm. You really knew each other two or three years before you were married. Yes. And we were engaged. We were engaged in 15. What was that unique quality? Well, he had a terrific sense of humor. He had a great enjoyment of life, although later on he was, he had these very deep depressions. You never saw that then? Not then, but when we, once we got to know each other well, he, he told me about them. He told me the story about, of his mother and father, and he, he felt as if his father was quite a bad man, and he, he kind of resented his father. But, I say he was trained to. I don't know that he really did, but he talked that way at first. That his, fa- his father had done his mother a lot of harm. I heard her very badly. And he was protective of his mother. Yes, but he and his mother were never terribly close to the same. I'm sure it was not all his father. Knowing it, knowing both of them now, I'm sure it was not all his father's fault. His mother was a very difficult woman, a very brilliant woman, but a very opinionated and sure of us, our own ideas and made it very uncomfortable for other people like perhaps when they did not agree with her. And his father was very easygoing. Bill got his lovable qualities from his father. His, his father was, was amiable and liked everybody and was easygoing and didn't push himself or anybody else very hard. But his mother was a dynamo. She was a pusher. But she was a very marvelous woman, and I got to be um, very fond of her, and we were really quite close, I think. I think we had some characteristics of our life, too. You were right. Well, maybe that's why Bill liked me, is because, it, because I did remind him of his mother. It might have been. We were, we were like physically to quite a lot of extent. She was, not that we looked alike, but we were about the same size and had the dark hair and we were both full of energy and pep and do it now people. She um, went to, as you know, went to um, Boston to study studied the osteopathy and she had to take the Harvard exams in medicine to get her degree in osteopathy. And she came out third in the class with all the men, competing with all the men and it took the osteopathy, so she was really a very brilliant woman. Did Bill ever feel competitive with her? If Bill was interested, there wasn't any limit to where, how far he'd go if he was interested. But if he wasn't interested, he did, just didn't pay any attention. So he didn't pass quite a few things because he wasn't interested. But Bill would, um, once he was interested in anything, he'd stick at it until the, everybody else was worn out. Bill would stick at it. Dorothy tells how he play on the fiddle all day long. And everybody would he'd send them out to the back woods. When was that? Well, he got interested in playing the violin. You're talking about his mother. No, Bill. No, when you said Dorothy. Dorothy, not Dorothy's his sister. Sister, I see. Yes. That was when he was young, before you met him, when he started with the fiddle. Mm-hmm. 
you already played pretty well when you know about it. Yes. And, but he was very ingenious. He would, he picked out of a, he found in an old hymnal of a, well I call it a keyboard, but the, uh, the places on the strings where you hold them down to make the different tones. And he put that under the strings, picked, cut it out of the hymnal, and stuck it on the neck of his violin underneath the strings. So he could see, you know, where to put them. And then he got Dorothy some to play one note on the piano, and then he, on the organ, had the organ. Melodia, he called it. Was his sister very much a part of your courtship and part of the life? His sister was very close to me. His sister, his sister was in love with my brother, as I said, and then my brother found another girl he liked better. And that was her and his sister, and his sister and I then had very close time together trying to help them. I tried to help her because she was very low in her mind there for quite a while, very unhappy for a while. Then she found another man, too, so that was good. Tell me about the time you decided to get engaged, the two of you. Well, I had a bow, another bow. <laughs> I belonged to this young people's league, and I'd met him, and he lived in, in um, a place called Kitchener in Ontario. And he wrote me and asked me if he could come Asked mother and asked if he could come um, down and, and visit us in the summer. So he did. And we had a very nice time. He was a very pleasant man, nice man. But all this time I was uh, wondering when he was going to go so I could see Bill. And I saw him off on the train. Was it just that Bill had more sex appeal? I mean, in the way we use the words today? Well, he used the words today in every possible way, so... It's hard to know. Everything is sex appeal these days. So, oh, I don't think it was all, all that he had. He was nowhere near as intelligent a man, although he's, he's still living, by the way, and gotten on very well. But anyway, he asked me to marry him and while he was down there. And I just said no and saw him off on the train. And Bill came up on the train, the same train. He was go- um, Norman was going north, and Bill came up on it from the south. And I saw one off, and Bill came. And we walked back to the station. It was a mile or so. Back, and we became engaged. So oh, what? You just go over there and just what happened? <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> what? What happened between the station and and the house? Well, we did go into the house for a long time. Oh. It's too beautiful outside. Mm-hmm. And, well, he just says... Was he jealous of that guy? I mean, did he see that fellow and put two and two together and get five? Or did he think, well... No, and, and actually, I don't think he ever asked me to marry him. I think we just decided that we loved each other. And that we would get married. I mean, I don't think he he ever really proposed the way men are supposed to get down on their knees and formally propose. Now what? I don't know. Well, what happened then? You got engaged and then he went back and took the train and went well, back? I went, no, he walked home that night. Um, there wasn't any train that time of night, so we walked home. But it was three miles, I guess, four miles. 
my mouth and he had to go. The next day, but the, the day after the next day, I had to go back to New York. I had a job and I had to go back and to work. So it was a very short time we had together there. And he came down to see us later on in the year. Was your family thrilled when you got engaged? No. I didn't tell anybody I was engaged for quite a little while. I didn't tell my mother or father or anything. Was there a reason for that? Yes. I, I, for one thing, I, you have a kind of a secret. You, It seems kind of precious and you want to keep it. And um, another thing is I, I didn't know whether they approved because you're so much younger than I am. Did that turn out to be right? No, they they were really most understanding. I don't think they were really very happy about it because Bill didn't have any job. He didn't have any. Um, he was young. He was undeveloped. Nobody knew what he was, how he was going. They liked him. They liked him a lot. But a young country boy that hadn't had any experience, really. I don't think they thought it was the best possible. Um well, did you care about his prospects at all? Well, I didn't think... I, oh, I knew that he could... I wasn't worried about his prospects. I knew that he could make his way. I was sure he could. Um, what kind of a life did... Before, just then, just turning over back then, what kind of a life did you imagine you might have with him? Well, I thought he'd... Um, I thought he'd be, it, exceed... Tremendously in some field. I didn't know what field it was going to be. But I was sure he was a winner. That he would make his way somewhere. Make his Well, I mean, he seemed so unique and different to me. I was just sure that he was uh, cut out for some big role. Tell me about your marriage. That was about a year later? No. It was more than that. Uh, this was 1915. We didn't get married till 18. January. Mm-hmm. This was, though, in the fall of, of um, 15, and we got married in January, the same day as he died, January 24th in uh, 1918, we got married. And he was um, due, he was by then in the army, he was in the... Heavy artillery. What did you wait almost three years to get married for? Well, because there wasn't anything to live on. He didn't have any business or any. He got in the army very soon. So that, and almost all our engagement was while he was in training to become an officer. Wasn't there sort of impatience during all that time? We saw a lot of each other in periods. And then there'd be long periods when we didn't see each other at all because I was in New York and he was at Plattsburgh or somewhere down in Fortress Monroe study. My father trained in Plattsburgh. You trained in Plattsburgh? No, my father. Oh, you trained father. He was just too young for World War One. And too old for World War II, but he got, I guess he was drafted or was in some kind of ROTC yeah. at New York University um, in about 19, 23, or 24. Mm-hmm. He spent a lot of time at Plattsburgh. 
He did. Yeah, his name is big in my family. Yes. Well, Bill went to the first Plattsburgh uh, officer training corps. You see, Norwich University was where he was going to school, and that's a military college. In fact, it's next to West Point. Nobody seems to know about it, but they've always seen it in this scholastically and militarily. Still there. Rated next, and still there, next to Plattsburgh, next to um, West Point. Well, listen, during that whole courtship, all those years, did Bill take a drink then? No, not one. No, he went with the boys to the saloons, and they took them. Beer and he took root beer, a sarsaparilla or something like that, because he'd been told that his father was a drunk, that the trouble with his mother and father had been caused largely by drink, and that his grandfather had done the same, but his grandfather had been got some kind of a religious conversion and stuck. But at one time, his grandfather had been a great nuisance to himself and his wife because of drink. So, I sense spoke. that drinking ran in the family. Yeah, definitely. So his um, mother and his grandfather warned him not to take a drink that he probably would follow in their suit. Did you know about that? Yes, he told me about that. I was very proud of it. I thought it was wonderful. That he told you? Or no, that he was... Uh, so strong-willed that he um, could go with the boys and, and not take a drink. And that was all well, this time before he went in the army and when he, well, he went in the before, army. before he got married. Mm-hmm. And he started drinking just before we got married. So, there, just before you got married, you, you had this whole history then of Bill as part of his family where alcohol was a problem. And you were proud of him that he didn't, that he could go to the saloons and resist. Mm-hmm. So therefore, when he started to drink, was it a red flag? I mean, how did, how did well, you reach out? It was quite a shock to me to discover that he was drinking because he hadn't told me. Because before we were married... There were long periods when we didn't see each other, so we hadn't seen each other for a long time. And we went to a party, and we both had something to drink. And then he kind of disappeared, and um, later one of the boys came to me, one of the young officers, and said that um, they'd just taken Bill home and put him to bed, and put a bucket by his head. Where did this take place? This is in New Bedford, Massachusetts, where we went to when we first married, where, where he was stationed. He was stationed at Fort Rodman, and he got an apartment for us there in town. And uh, this was at a party. New Bedford was quite a social town. There was lots of, of uh, money there because they were... There's a cotton um, manufacturing town as well as being whaling town. Did you and Bill have a lot of money then? Were you comfortable? Did your family sort of help provide for you? No, we lived on his pay completely, on his officer's pay. We didn't either one of us um, borrow anything from our families. Um, we didn't have any more than just the regular officer's pay. 
And where were you this night when they came and told you that? Were you still at the party, or? I was still at the party, and they took me home. And there he was in fact with the bucket of his head. And that was kind of a, a shock to me. But I was very self-assured, and I was sure that I've said this so many times in our AA meetings. But I was so sure of myself. I'm sure that uh, living with me would be such an inspiration for him that he wouldn't need any artificial stimulus about that. I so thought, thought he surely just sort of heard once what that would be. Well, he, the, I came to this conclusion after this has happened several times. But I was very uh, shocked about it and very surprised. But it didn't really depress me too much of, because I felt sure that, it, that I could fix him, and I could help him to get over this kind of drinking. Did it take much to make him drunk, you know? Well, it took him. Um, he could drink more and more as he became accustomed to it before he got drunk. Of course, I believe all alcoholics go. Their, their tolerance begins very low when it gets so they can drink a lot. And then they could reach a point but suddenly it falls off. And just a little bit of drink makes it. What involved your lives on the part the fact that you're using the army, which is in a sense like a job? Uh, what, did, what did you really do? What were your interests? In? How did you spend your time? Well, we loved the outdoors. We'd go hiking and walking. Any, any uh, chance we got. We loved that kind of thing. Um... Of course, that really was a very short period in our lives, that army post business. But we liked to read out loud. We read together a lot and played. We loved music and we used to play. He played the violin and I played piano and we, we spent many evenings that way playing together. Or reading out loud. I'd love to read out loud to him. How long was he gone? Well, he was gone. Um, from August to, I think he was gone nine months. Overseas, and he didn't get into the fighting. They got ready for it, but they didn't really have any. Before he went over, though, I think my family, looking back at it now, I think they were quite, um, Uh, open-minded and uh, tolerant and modern, really, in their ideas to let me go around. I'd go. I went to Plattsburgh, went up, and I went to um, Fort Ethan Allen when he was there, and I went down to um, Fortress Monroe and stayed. That room stayed down there. when we were engaged, and they didn't raise any objection at all. And while he was in New Bedford, before we were married, while he was stationed there, I went up to see him there, and he got a room in the boarding house for me, which, being back in those days, was really quite... Scary. 
they were quite uh, what, what is understanding of, of, of me and uh, trusting. They were loving and trusting of, of me right along. They never... Well, one has the impression that you could live together a little bit. Day after day, in the well, why does one get that impression? Well, simply... Just because people do that now. Well, well I, I might as well... Come out with it. Would I you might as well come out with it and say that's absolutely not so. It's not so. And absolutely not so that that was one of our our greatest, um, well, we'll say hardest and greatest um, aims, really, that, that we would not be together intimately that way until we were married. This was an ideal that we had when we kept to it. And it was hard. And it was hard. It was very hard. We both felt. Do you remember a time that it was extremely hard? Yes, I know. It was extremely hard. <laughs> what was it like 60 years ago to be physically in love with somebody? We were both young and extremely attractive people. Um, and to have the same physiological feelings that we all have, because that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. And that's how did you handle it? Well, I think that's I think that's one of the places I'm going to stop and okay. say that you'll have to use your imagination. What prompted you to get oh, married? Oh, yes. Well, we set the wedding for a date in February 1918, and then he got word that... Um, that he was to be shipped overseas... But it was all very vague and you didn't know when. So we thought we'd get married right off. So we antiponed, or whatever the word is, the uh, marriage. Two weeks we got married. And did you have any second thoughts just before you did it? No, I didn't have any second thoughts. I couldn't wait. I was afraid something would happen before it would before I get married, I didn't know what to do. Like what? Well, I didn't know that I'd die or he'd die or something would awful would happen. I wouldn't be able to get married. Um, Afraid somebody would come and steal him away? Well, I don't think I thought of that too much. Um, we had the wedding. In the church, fairly formal wedding, and the bridesmaids and everybody, um, they all our friends called up everybody to tell them. You see, we'd had the wedding invitations all at the jewelers, at the printers, or wherever you send them to be done. They happened to be jewelers and looking. That did the wedding invitations. And we had them made into announcements. And then everybody called up or everybody else to tell them that it was going to be two weeks at a time. And the woman finished my dress, the dressmaker, with my grandmother's lace on it. And um, she put everything else aside and finished up my dress. So it was great scrambling around to get the wedding. All Zarmi friends. A lot of Zarmi friends came to the wedding. No, they didn't come to the wedding. But when we went up to New Bedford, 
with the apartment was. The apartment up there was filled with flowers. That the army boys and his buddies up there sent to welcome me home. Welcome me home. And they were very, very cordial and very nice. So, that was that. Well, tell me more about the wedding day. About the wedding day? Mm-hmm. Afternoon. Well, my brother was to be best man, and he came in with his boots on, and he didn't have time to change them, or he forgot his other shoes, so he walked up the island's muddy boots on. Oh, let's see what else. Then what did you do? You worked your way back up to the post where your room full of flowers was waiting for you. That's right. Was there a party? Yes, people came in to see us. Okay. I don't think so, but he went there. I don't seem to remember. How much time was there before you left? How much time, huh? Before you left the country. Before you left the country? Mm-hmm. Well, we married in January and he went in August. Oh, so you had a good long time. Did, during that period, did you talk about the future? Yes, we tried to. We did talk about the future, sure. But we didn't come to any conclusion. He was very ambitious to do something outstanding, to do something useful. Did he want to make a lot of money? Well, I don't think he had the money idea too much at that time. He did after he got into Wall Street. But he wanted to do out, something outstanding for mankind. He really wanted to do that for all the time. I'll talk about that when we're engaged. Yeah, well, how strong a feeling was that? That's a very interesting thing. I think it was a quite strong feeling that he wanted to do Do you want to be the president? Yes. Yes, he talked about that. He didn't put it past him himself at all. He didn't turn... He had big ideas. I don't think he'd be a bit surprised to... I don't think he ever was surprised to see AA go as it did go. I think he just expected it to. No, that's one of the things I like best about this story is a man who, who dreams so much about being number one, who finally arranged it in such a way that nobody would ever be able to know it. It's <laughs> <laughs> that, very nice, you know. What did he think about the other number ones? Like Princess Henry Ford. I think he admired Henry Ford a lot. Why would he go up to him on the beach that day? Because he would not intrude on the daddy of all flippers, I think he called him, or something like that. He always had funny names and expressions for people. He wouldn't intrude on his privacy. So if he came out here to be private, he wasn't to be off by himself on the beach. He wasn't going to. Didn't stop you. Didn't stop me, but it did him. And we always had been curiosity because we did all kinds of things that other people didn't do. Didn't do. For instance, after he came home from the war, he didn't know what he wanted to do. So, we couldn't think he got one kind of a job and then another. He was um, putting in piles 
from the New York Central Railroad. He is. And he got a job as bookkeeper for the New York Central Railroad. He got ink all of them. He come home every day with ink all of them. He's very careless about a lot of things. If he wasn't interested, he just, uh, you know, just get very careless about things. And um, he had several jobs that didn't amount to anything. He decoding cablegrams at one time. But he just couldn't find what he wanted to do, so um we kept being disappointed that we didn't get a that he didn't get a job or didn't find what he wanted to, but it wasn't we thought that was just in the they didn't want a shed. You know, I think we thought she was sorry, huh? And so we um went on this hike. We packed up our army kits. I had my took my brothers and, and Bill took theirs and the packs on our backs. We walked across Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. This was before the well before the World Second War. This was in 1919, and that was in 25. You were just just after uh, you got back from the army. Mm-hmm. What was it like when you came home? Well, I was working down at the. I was doing occupational therapy. In the Walgreens Hospital in Washington. And I got a letter from him that he was coming home. On the, yeah, I can't think of the name of the And I looked up where it was going to dock, and it said Norfolk, Virginia. So I went to Norfolk, Virginia. When I got there, I found it wasn't going to dock there, it was going to dock in Newark, New Jersey. So I dashed home back to Newark, New Jersey. And I got there just in time to see him the game. But um there's a little strange strangeness when you meet somebody that you haven't you've been very intimate with and then you haven't seen them for quite a long time. And at first it was a little bit of strength. Just a feeling of... Well, you wondered what all the water was that had gone under the bridge, you know, between on both sides of them. On both sides of the river, on both sides of the bridge. But then... Very soon you can't just felt this familiar as... Oh, just a matter of days, a couple of days, maybe hours. I can't remember now. It's a long time ago. Did Did you what, Did you wonder about what happened in the sense that you wondered if he drunk, or you wondered if it was a Pete Manzel? No, and I. Parmentiers and whatnot. The next potato. Pretty sure about those. I oh, about his drinking, yes. You wondered what had happened in that school. Mm-hmm. You'd been left with enough concern. Mm-hmm. Before he left, that somehow you wanted to get the many tails under his head in Paris? Yes. Did you ask him about it? I don't remember um, asking too much about it. He told me about going to Paris. He told me quite a few things. 
told me about the getting drunk with the boys a couple of times, but nothing. I don't think he was. I don't think he was too bad in the army. Bill, I don't quite understand um, Bill's drinking pattern entirely. Because when we went on these hikes, which we were doing all the time, and which he seemed to want to go on just as much as I did, he never drank on them. And we'd, um, I'd arrange the weekends for us to go off together so that, um, because I wanted to take him away from, from liquor. But he seemed perfectly willing, perfectly anxious, and he'd want to go. I mean, I don't think I was forcing him in any way. I think he wanted just as much as I did. To but, go away, but then he didn't drink on these. That leads me to an interesting question. Jumping way ahead to the desperate years, did you think about insisting that you stay away from New York, that he go and lead some sort of rural life where that could be his full time life? I don't think I thought about insisting that he lead a rural life because I didn't think that it would. If that was his complete life, I didn't think it would keep him away from me. I mean, it. It did, as it was a relief from the city, but I don't think it was a constant thing. It would have, it would have uh, kept him away from doing So you never saw just getting him out of town as a solution? Oh, yes, I did. It. I took a leave of absence from the store for Macy's when I was working there. The superintendent was very understanding, and I went to him and asked him for three months' leave of absence. And he said, well, why do you want it? And I said, well, my husband is sick. And he said, well, what's the matter with your husband? And I said, oh, well, he's just not very well and he needs to go to the country. Well, he said, well, I must know a little more definitely what's the matter with your husband. <laughs> so I finally told him. And he gave me the leave of absence. So all the other sales place and everything was surprised, very surprised that I got the news. So I took him up to Vermont for three months. We had a wonderful time and he was so old. Now, you never thought before that three months ended, my God, he's been sober for three months in the city, he's, he's been drunk, let's not go back? No, I didn't because I, I was always hopeful that he was going to control this thing. But we went back and he was drunk in no time. What did his father think of you? Well, of course, you never know what father thinks of you. But we got on. We got on very, very well. I think he liked me all right. What did his mother think of you? Well, his mother, I feel very, very proud of the fact that his mother said to me one time, I want to thank you, Lois, for not all, not only what you've done for Bill, but for my whole family. I, I'm telling you that, which sounds very conceited, but I'm very proud of it. 
How did she feel about you then? How did she feel about me then? Oh, now, let me tell you about the um, social structure up there in Vermont. I suppose it's the same place in any um, resort, maybe. There are the natives and there are the city folks that come up, and they have entirely different viewpoints on lots of them. And there's kind of a feud going on. And of course she was a native, and my family was city folks. And Bill and I reached that gap off, of course. But um, there is quite a feeling. Each one feels superior to the other. It's just a silly kind of a setup, you know, because... And you can understand for the... Um, the natives feeling the way they do because some of people come in and feel act as if they own the whole place, whereas it's the home of the of the natives and they belong there and they know how everything has developed and how it's going. And they said if people come in, change a whole lot of their own customs and do a whole lot of things, and the city people. You look down their noses at the natives. There's no two ways about that. But at the beginning, were you that a city girl that had come with false values to sweep them away and take them off to the... I just have it in my head that she had some resistance to you. Well, I think she did have. I think she must have had some resistance to me. She didn't and I think she maybe it kind of returned a little bit when she got older. But during our life together, I think we... Um, I think it was more or less um, allayed, so to speak, the, uh, the feeling that was uh, subdued or was covered up or something. Well, but during those early years, the 25, 28, 29, 30, those really rough years, uh, when she knew what was going on with him, I mean, she, you say she didn't see it, so she didn't pop down and see what was going on herself. Get involved? In, was she sort of anxious to stay uninvolved in the whole thing? Once a, a, a daughter is married, and um, has, or a son has married and um, moved away and living its life, you don't pop in and just on them and uh, try to straighten out their lives. You and wait until you're asked or something to do what you don't. What happened to make Bill decide that he didn't want to ever be very rich? Or did he ever really give that up? Well, he gave it up when he... Uh, um, when he recognized that everything that he had been striving, striving for, see, he was successful in Wall Street, and then, of course, it was the, the depression came on, the collapse. Um, but also, he would have lost too, even if it hadn't come because of his drinking, because he wasn't able to keep up with anything or follow through on any project. Um, and when he had this spiritual experience, spiritual awakening in towns, he gave up all that. He gave up the profit motive too? Well, I don't think he gave up uh, the idea that you had to have um, that money grease the wheels. <laughs> of, I mean, the practical side, you had to have money to do certain things. But that that's what he wanted to 
to do in life to make a lot of money. I don't think that, not as a goal. He didn't have the money as a goal. He had the money that, to be used as a step towards some. What was his goal? That's interesting because, I mean, so, as he, he himself refers to this urge to power and this urge to wealth. Yes, well, he, of course, the urge to power, I think, came, I think he, what's the word, sublimated? <laughs> sublimated it, I think. I think it was still there to a certain extent in Bill's life, all through his life to a certain extent. But he sublimated it. That's the right word. Into the organization. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about that? You, to, you didn't have a spiritual experience, although you were very glad to see him sober. That doesn't mean that you might have sublimated your material needs and impulses. Well, um, oh, I was terribly excited and terribly happy and walking on air for quite a while until I began to realize, well, I wouldn't let myself realize. I mean, I, I was really quite a disciplined person. I mean, I wouldn't let myself do these things that I thought were, were not um, the most helpful things to do. Um, I wouldn't let myself doubt. I wouldn't let myself feel that I wasn't on the top of the world. But finally, there was enough um, loneliness and unhappiness and I had what... Um, the AAs and the Al-Nan members always laughed. Those is famous shoe-throwing episode. It was an episode, but it stopped me thinking. And I realized that I wasn't happy. I wasn't the least bit happy then. I was happy. I was glad that Bill was sober. But as for any companionship with him, I didn't have any anymore. And where, where was he spending all his time? He was spending his time at the hospitals, down at the mission, at Towns Hospital, and, and with the working with them. Other alcoholics. Well, surely there must have been more than simply the famous shoe-throwing episode. Oh, yes, sure. Oh, it took me ages to, to analyze the whole situation, to realize that I worked for 17 years to try to sober Bill up, and somebody else came along and talked to him one evening, and that was it. It was a change man. And I was, I was jealous of that. I was jealous of his friends. I resented them. The time that he spent with them. Who were his friends? Who were his friends? The, the, the drunks. Who were his special friends, though? Well, um, there was this Hank Parkhurst that was the first man out of the hospital in New York. Of course, Bob Smith was a very, a very dear friend. Hank was a... Um, Rousing companion, he wasn't a, wasn't anything intimate or understanding, a great understanding, I think, between them. But then there was Fitz Mayo, who was the son of a minister and was a cultivated, cultured, um, southern gentleman, very impractical, a dreamer. Charming, loving person. We used to go down there all the time. We were constantly running down to Maryland. Their home was in Maryland, down a place called Cumberstone. 
Chesapeake. Well, how did Bill spend his time? Was it just 24 hours a day into yes. alcoholism and well, drugs and picking up derelicts? Well, part of the time he had a job at Quan Foley. Got a job at Quan Foley was stuck looking. This was... This was before he went to Akron. So, so he had this was after the spiritual experience was before Akron? Um, yes. And even in Akron, he was still well, interested in the profit motive. He was there to make money, essentially. Yes, well, he was there to... We, we had to live. You had to have something to live on. The profit motive, if you mean just something to earn your bread and butter... That's um, um, quite a necessary thing, and that's he hadn't had a job, and he went out there to get that, but it wasn't too well. He didn't have the uh, goal of making a tremendous amount of money at all. Although, again, it comes in as power drive comes in a little bit because uh, this company of um, Um, at least some people in the company, it was a reorganization, and they wanted to put him in as president. And of course that kind of pleased him. They didn't to me. They like that word president. Like that word. Sometimes when you drink, when I drink, I get dreams of glory. Oh yes, but then that's that's not a real dream. I don't think it's it's an alcoholic dream. Did he have those? Oh yes. What was he like when he was drunk? He wasn't just a falling asleep. He was well. He thought he was sharper and keener, cause for quite a little while when he was um, when he had something to drink. But then it got to be that that he couldn't keep that up and then he'd have to have more and more to keep trying to keep it up and then instead of making him sharper and keener it made him, made him soggy and soggy yet. Do you ever been drinking cronies home with him? Oh yes, he bought drinking cronies. What did you do? Tried to be hospitable. I didn't take any particular interest in that either. How would you go to other rooms? Is it a door between you and them? How would you <laughs> I, don't, I don't seem to remember. Maybe he let him sleep on the sofa downstairs. See, we were living in my father's house during these bad, during these bad drinking years in Brooklyn. And uh, he could put him to sleep downstairs on the sofa in the front office of my father's office. I don't seem to remember. Um, because, um, really, by the time by this time, I'm thinking of uh, 30, 31 and 32. And he was really so sodden that he didn't, he hardly went out and did anything at all. Well, what was a typical one of those sodden days really like? I was working. So I would go and leave him in the morning and he'd be in bed usually. And I'd get up and go out to work. And when I came back, he'd be maybe down in the kitchen. This is one of the ways this is typical here. Didn't find a copy of it. 
when you came home? You do the kitchen of it. How would he be? Well, he'd be, um, sometimes I'd have to carry him upstairs. Sometimes he, I'm, by carrying him, you know, I'll practically push him upstairs. Sometimes I'd leave him there, put a, a blanket over him or something. You mean he'd be out cold over the kitchen table or something like something that? Something like that, yeah. And then he used to come home. When he was going out, he'd come home, and I don't know how he ever would make it home. It may have been three o'clock in the morning, but he'd make it home and fall right down, dead drunk, inside the door. He'd, just, he'd make it up the steps, up the stoop. And then fall down right inside the door. Couldn't get him on. And, and fall asleep. I mean, be, be out completely then. Did that, did that a lot of times. I think the worst time was when I lose my own temper at him. Because he was really very, he was really very gentle and, and uh, Easily managed for for an alcoholic, and he did kick out the, the panels of the several doors down in the basement. What? I don't remember what he was mad at. Maybe I was balled him out. Did you ball him out? I, I balled him out. Yes, I balled him out, and I got mad at him. Terribly mad. Well, I tell him all kinds of things because it it didn't really make much difference. It was wasted, you know, just wasted when you were drunk. You just did wasting your own energy doing it. But in the mornings, he was so sorry. He was so. He was so repentant in the mornings. He wanted them. And he wanted me to help him to stop this drinking. You couldn't be mad at him then. I mean, you had to, you had to forgive him. You couldn't ball him out then. You had to try and help him because he was so low in his own mind about himself. So, the worst day, I'm still thinking. How would you try to speak when we go back to that? How would you try to help it? How could you conceive of being able to help it? Well, the, the only way was to, to know that, to let him know that I was back of him, that I support, wouldn't support him, and I loved him, and that, um, I had faith, faith that he could do. See, I kept thinking it was up to him to do it. I mean, there was something that he could do. He could stop drinking. Until Dr. Silkway told me that, uh, that it was an illness. 
and that he probably couldn't stop drinking and didn't eat either. Well, when you got up in the morning to go to work, and he was very happy and good and sweet, you knew that the minute you walked out the door, he was going to head for a bottle. There's probably bottles all over the house. Huh? Oh, yes, there were bottles all over the house. The bottles up, we had them. Our house, I don't know how old it was. It really was an old house. It had a Dutch oven in the basement. I don't know when it was built. But it had one of those boxes, toilet, up in the toilet. Up, the water tank was up in a wooden box. A wooden box, it was. Up in the ceiling. But he was a tall man that he could reach up and put the, a bottle in the tank and nobody else could do that now. I mean, it, nobody could find it up there in the tank, so the bottle's being... Where did you get the money to buy it? Well, he charged it at the, um, there was a grocery store and he seemed to have a pal up there. And they would even deliver the money. He'd have to go, wasn't too far away. But he could get, he got liquor through this man's grocery store. And, and he would deliver it to him. Or, or Bill would sometimes go out and get it. And he'd charge it there. You would never ask him at the grocery store stop that particular privilege. I went in there once and did it, but it didn't do any good. Asked him to not deliver any liquor. Well, whose credit was it? It wasn't Bill's, it was yours. No, it was his. He, he charged it. And then, then when he did get any money, uh, liquor bills were the very first bills we paid. He had to keep his credit good. He got any money. And he took money out of my pocketbook. Did it matter? Did it mean that? Yes, sure. Well, did you ever really try to stop his access to liquor? I mean, it was, that was 17 years his life, and it's a very long time. And how could you live with it for 17 years without trying to stop him? Of course, in the beginning, we had these wonderful breaks when we were together in the country. We were always going off together into the country. We had them continually. And it was only when he just, it was only the last three or four years that we really, uh, that he, that we didn't have any respite from it at all. You get the other things, for the first time I thought you been, you could see them as episodes in a successful life. Mm-hmm. He was making mm-hmm. money, he was succeeding at the market, if he lost the job, you didn't hold it against him. They were unhappy times, but they, they didn't, um, well, we lived on the good times in between. And the others were just trying to forget. When you had that big fancy apartment, you was making all that money. Generally, people like that collect a lot of fair weather friends. There's a lot of coming and going, and 
parties. Was that typical of your life? Well, Bill had um, a lot of friends, but they were my friends too. He didn't have a lot of friends except the ones that he had at the office. When I was thinking of in Montreal when we went up there. We were, it was in 29, after the crash. Bill was lucky enough to get a job up in um, Montreal up at the... Oh, I can't think of the name of the company now. And of course, uh, I didn't see the business plans of his. I did see one of them. Um, yeah, I never thought I'd forget that man's name. Very handsome, very charming gentleman. Very English. And we went to the Ritz one night for dinner. In Montreal. And uh, the boys weren't too bad during the dinner, just Bill and, and this man and myself. And they didn't seem too bad to me. But when we got up to leave, I noticed they were a little steady, a little unsteady on the feet. So I grabbed them each by the arm. We went off and said, and the doorman was all very elegant. The doorman, um, Sam called a cab. And it was snowing like anything. <laughs> we went out to the cab. Me with a, one of these drunks on either hand, either arm. The face, one fell down, and then the other fell down. <laughs> and the, the doorman acted, you know, just as if it, it was nothing unusual or nothing. And he helped one up, he helped me into the car, then helped one up the cab. And then helped the other up and then <laughs> it was the funniest thing when they first one fell off. This is the end of part one. Here now we continue with our intimate conversation with Lois Wilson. But you were able to see a lot of those things is funny. Oh yes, I, th- I really thought that was funny. I couldn't. <laughs> I, I thought that was funny, yes. Sounds good. Sounds That would make a good scene in the movie. What would Bill have done with all the charm that he had and with all the ability he obviously had? What did he finally do to change the world? Well, he wouldn't get there when he said he would go. would be there. If there was an important meeting, he wouldn't get there at all, saying he was And if he went at all, he was he wouldn't make too much of a scene there. I think. I think it was not doing the things that he... Did he insult people? What did you say? Did he insult people? He may have done it some, but I don't think too much. Let's, let's get back to where our own point was there. Well, if you had to remember the worst day, the worst day of your life, I really don't think that you can pick out a voice because they were all so much alike one after the other and um, 
I, I don't think I can tell you what was the worst day. I, I, I knew I was going to flunk on this course. Because <laughs> Let me be the I'm, I'm, there, there are no, because as, I as it happens, there are no grades. But, uh, <laughs> but if anybody has to be the judge of that, why don't you leave that to me? <laughs> Lay that one up. <laughs> Well, I really can't, because uh, I've tried to not to remember them, you know, for so long, that I can't bring them back to them. I remember one day in, in my, this was um, not in 29, it was before this, that wasn't when we were living in Montreal, but we'd been up there on a trip, he'd been up on an investigating trip. And uh, we were coming home, and we stopped on the International Bridge, and there were all kinds of shops and things, and just as you, before you get onto the bridge, or part of the bridge. And Bill said, oh, I want to stop and get some cigarettes. Bill had been wonderful. He hadn't had anything to drink. On this, all this time. He said, oh, I want to stop and get some cigarettes. This, we were on the Montreal side. And I didn't use my head at the time. I didn't say anything. I let him go. But I began to think about those cigarettes. Why is he getting cigarettes in Montreal? I mean, on this side of the bridge. But if we go over to the other side of the bridge, it'll be so much cheaper. It isn't cigarettes he wants. It's liquor he wants. Because he could get it there and he couldn't get it on the other side of the bridge. Well, he didn't come back and he didn't come back. And it got later. And I didn't know he had... He'd been so fine that he had the money. I tried to do that all the time. Um, when he was himself, to let him feel he was a man, have the money and the, and the keys and to the car and everything, he had, he, for some reason, he took the keys to the car. Maybe just out of habit taking him out of the car. So. Anyway, um, I sat there on the bridge, going on, getting darker and darker. And uh, I don't know how many hours I sat there. He didn't come back. So I began looking for him. And I went to ev in every saloon I could find. Nothing but saloons, really. And I finally found him. Sitting on a bar stool. In fact, him on that list it wasn't a terrible thing. It was just that I was so got panicky. How am I going to get out of that? Well, let's go back to that one. I hadn't any money. You found him on a bar stool. Mm -hmm. What happened? Well, he sheepishly came home. He wasn't dead drunk? Well, he was quite drunk. But he could walk enough to get him back to the car. Had he forgotten about you completely? I think so. 
Did you slug him? Everybody said that. Yeah. <laughs> he came back sheepishly, very sheepishly. Andrew didn't drive. Did he drive? Yeah. Did he, he drive? He didn't drive. No. No, he didn't. He, he gave the cup keys to me. Yeah. And what do you think was the overpowering urge that came to him that, on that? Why couldn't he go across that bridge? Is it simply because... Well, it, it was the last, yes, the last chance getting a, a drink, I think. He couldn't get it in the States, he sort of. So he had to have it. What did he Another time he had two terrible burns. He had great big scars that, that lasted all his life, right here what on his legs. What about his knee and his thigh? Uh-huh. In his inner thigh. Inner thigh, uh, yes, up here. Uh, from the um, motorcycle. I'm just riding the motorcycle. Drunk. That's the only time that I ever knew him to. He took the motorcycle out there? Yes. And, um, well, on that trip, you were And fell, fell over. The motorcycle fell over on him a bit. And the, uh, whatchamacallit, you know, by the... You know, quite, there was quite a bit of drinking in that motorcycle trip around the country. You think he couldn't buy, was it? Well, he did some drinking, but we were aware a whole year, and he did really very little when you consider it. Did he embarrass you in places there? No, no, he didn't ever embarrass me. Because they were in the small towns. And no, he didn't eat in the small towns. He only drank when we were by ourselves. He drank in the tent one time or another. He had a, we had a vista come. I guess maybe I have to say that in the book. So. No idea what it's in my book. I don't know where I said which now. Anyway, um, there was a border at one of the, when we were on the motorcycle, we used to go to people's, where we see a nice place to, we thought to camp. We'd go and ask the people if we could camp in such and such. And then we'd have a, a, we were able to go there and get milk or cream or something or vegetables. And we were uh, camped out in um, Egypt, Pennsylvania. And they had a border at this house. The border got drunk and came out to see us. Came out with his liquor. And Bill and he started to drink and then after after the border left, which it was at the end of the day, he was there the whole day. Bill went to town and got more. It was one time. And the other time I a bad time was when we were camping off someplace and Bill had just had a little bit to drink. And I thought, well, this is a good time for me to show him how utterly silly a person can be, stupid a person can be when they're drunk. I'll get drunk too. So I did. And Bill thought it was a grand game. He thought it was wonderful. He kept encouraging me. And, and of course I got what seemed to me a lot. More and more, and um, 
He didn't do the, didn't bother him at all. He was just having a grand time in art. Were you too? Well, we had fun there for a little while, but not too much fun. And in the morning, he did, he took a little bit of the hair of the dog that bit him. And he, he was feeling fine in the morning, and I was as sick as sick as I was. So that was a farce. Only a few years later, there you were, you were living in the house with your father. Hmm? Had a drug in your hands. What was your father's attitude Well, he told me about towns. He said, he told me about this hospital I could take him to. And, um, But that's an act of sympathy and generosity and concern. But surely he couldn't have just felt those things. Again, projecting myself into it, if I have my daughter living in my house with a drunk, I think I'd be pretty upset. Was it your father? Yes, he was upset. And he tried to help Bill. He talked to him and he tried to help him, but... Dad wasn't home too much. He was there from... Dad was there. Mother died in 30. Bill was born the day she died. Christmas Day. And... Dad stayed until 33. But he wasn't there lots in the evening time, in the evening. Very much he, he was listening, he used to listen. It's hard for me to explain it all to Because he did see a lot of it, some of it, I mean, not a lot. What did prohibition mean to go? Well, he made bathtub gin. In your bathtub? Yes. It's called bathroom. Did he like speakeasies? Did he like speakeasies? Yes. Did he go to some fancy ones? I don't know what he went to fancy ones. How fancy they were. I think it depended upon his um, financial status at the moment. What were you going to say? Just wondering, you know, you get the impression from speakeasies, you get a different feeling than a bar. You think of a bar, you think of a lot of men. You think of speakeasies, you think of women. Oh, do you? Yeah, I do. So I'm just curious. Were there women during that period? Oh, women drank to some extent, but nowhere near what way they do now. It was quite, I think, unusual to see them. Speakeasies. You know, if you say speakeasy for me, I have images of Texas guy and things like that. Oh, I see. Sorted women. Sorted women. I, I don't know. I never really went to a speakeasy. So I really know what but I never talked. What? You never joined in any of those no. soirees, huh? When you had to go out and get a job at $19 a week to put bread on the table. That was the basic pay of $19. At Macy's, but I got a commission on sales. It was only 1%, but it was a commission on sales. And you made your money on the 
on sales. So you really did pretty well. I mean, luckily, you really went through the depression without a, a huge amount of you never really got near the bread lines or anything just because he was a drunk and, and unable No, to we had to take some silver and pawn it. Well, I was earning money during that time because it never was anything very much, but it was just a little bit. But it seemed to keep us going. And Bill did make money occasionally. He, he made quite a lot of did I tell you about the time? I don't know what wedding anniversary it was, but it was wedding anniversary. And I was at Macy's, and rather than Macy's furniture floor, you know, you could see somebody wear half mile down. And Bill, he was this great tall figure. A Bill weaving up the aisle. He had a bouquet of flowers on one hand and a tissue paper bundle on the other. And um, I had a customer, and so I went out with a customer. He waited there kind of unsteadily. <laughs> and everybody began to, you know, the people that were around began to kind of take a little interest. And then Bill, after the customer went, very formally presented the flowers and the, and the um, tissue paper bundle to me. I opened it up, and... Um, Inside was a wristwatch and a check for $2,000. And that was very exciting because then we went out for dinner. But he couldn't eat. He never ate very much. Hardly ate at all. So he was filling his soup so much so it was enough to eat. And our home we didn't And um, the next morning when he was sober, he asked for the $2,000 back. <laughs> but I mean, he did occasionally make money. How? And stock money. But how did it work? Well, he would get, he would do an investigating job for somebody and get paid for it. For Hushon or for portfolio, several of the brokers. And then, of course, well, that was only for nine months, I guess, that he did have his job at portfolio. But he was darn good at his job when he did it. And then they give him a healthy fee like that, two, three thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the two thousand you made, for instance, he brought from Macy's, had he been, just been away? Uh, yeah. Yes, something? I think so. How did you feel about him going off there? He was very seriously ill, really. If I didn't hear from him, I'd be scared. He was drinking. And he was some some of the time, but it didn't do too much when he was... Did he ever wander off one of those young years to go out and bring him back? No, I never went out and brought him back. But he did travel a lot all around the country. And my diaries full of Bill to Detroit, Bill to Boston, Bill to here. Did he phone or did he just write letters? He phoned. You never thought about leaving Bill? Ever, not, ever, ever, ever? Not, not really living, leaving him. No. Did another man... I tried to see, if, tried to make myself, tried to analyze it at one time to see if 
if I thought that really living in was helping. But I doubt if I ever could have made, made up my mind to leave it. Why not? I mean, it seems like he was a pretty hard case, almost hopeless object at some time. Well, he was the last couple of years, but he wasn't through a period till before that always when he was a real human being. <laughs> but it was only just the last couple of years when he was just sodden all the time. Did you ever think about another man? Ever? Well, there was a period when that I was telling you about him when um, I recognized the fact that Bill didn't need me anymore. I'd had a very definite uh, job of, of trying to help Bill and now that was gone and I hadn't anything taken place. I didn't know what. It really was quite lost there for a while after Bill sobered up. And um, I didn't know my status, Belford, had insisted in, in, uh, that I quit my job, and in 1936, I did quit my job and started in to do a little interior decorating on my own. But um, one of the boys there seemed to need me, and I was kind of interested in helping him, and I t- told Bill about it once. Bill was very understanding. But one time he really got jealous and was going out to... told me he was going to get drunk and went out and... told himself he was going to get drunk. But he just didn't do it. He went over to CNA and went to CNA and didn't do it. So that's the closest I came to it. You see, one of those boys seemed to need you. You knew which boys were. The boys that were living that were living in the house. In other words, in an odd way, you love drugs. Yes, I love drugs. Well, I do love drugs. <laughs> I do love drugs. I mean, they're very lovable, lovable human beings. So, you're, what you're really telling me is that one of those drugs that was in the house fell in love with you. No, I'm not telling you that. He didn't tell me. He just seemed to need. He just he seemed to need need a little mother. So that was that was the end of that. He still got jealous of that. Well, he didn't. He was very. He didn't get jealous for quite some time, and all of a sudden he did. But they were his drugs. He brought them in the house. I know. He do to his drug? He'd take his, get that drug out of the house. Well, the drug had left, left the house himself. He had wisdom enough to leave the house himself. Well, that, in that, that big book thing, that, the reason I started to bring that up was that um, I thought it was a very good chapter. And uh, I'm sorry you didn't write it. He talks there, there's one little chapter, a paragraph that's very good. He talks about all the weaknesses that wives of alcoholics themselves have weaknesses, but 
Well, no, that kind of distorted us. Uh, it talks about the possibility, for instance, of retaliatory love affairs. I could see how you would be tempted. I was able to take that line, which is right there in the big book, and imagine if that applied to you and them. But it's interesting what you say, that, that when it came, even as close as it came to you, it came when he was sober. Mm-hmm. Not really when he was drunk. Yeah, not when he was drunk. It was all hunky dory, really, when he was drunk. Well, in a strange way. Well, in a strange way, and I, uh, as I said, it's taken me a long time to analyze a lot of this business. And probably this ought to, I haven't done right, or that I haven't even done. But um, I didn't have any children. Bill was my baby. I needed him to satisfy my own emotional. Um, set up. That's one reason I think why I'd never think of leaving him, maybe. <laughs> I never thought of leaving him. Do you ever think of leaving you? I mean, again, if I'm a 17 year old drunk, then what you would do is you would go to work and you knew the bottle was in the toilet downstairs and you knew there was $6 on the table and you knew there was a grocer who would give him credit. In a sense, you were saying, Go right on being the way you were, Bill. You mean and he was saying, stop it. Ambivalent. Yeah, was he? Was he or was I? Both of you, either of you. I don't think I wanted to drink. I, I, you know, it's hard to, to know yourself. But I really don't think I did want him to drink. But his drinking did give me a certain sense of usefulness that I lost when he stopped. A certain purpose in life, you'll say. And it filled a certain gap that I had in my own emotional life. We tried to adopt a child. How did that happen? How did this happen? Yeah, what happened? That's interesting. Um, well, this is when we were living in a nice apartment in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. When Bill was successful on Wall Street in 28 and 9. But he was pretty drunk. Though. He was pretty drunk, but he was able to carry on working Wall Street quite successfully. We applied to the Chapin, Spence Chapin uh, Adoption Agency. And in those days, it was very difficult to adopt a child. And they looked into you very thoroughly. And the woman came over and saw us and, and said she'd find somebody for us, but it might take some time. Well, went on and on. And we'd inquired, haven't they gotten a baby yet? No, I hadn't found it. It went on and on, and no baby was found. You had to, um, also, you had to get references. And I'd given several names of friends. And one of my good friends had written, she told me, that she had told the adoption agency that she didn't think we were suitable parents for an adopted baby because of Bill's dream. Bill, of course, always had the feeling that that was so. 
And he was, he said that it, he said it's probably because I, of my drinking, but they're not, they haven't done anything, but I didn't think it was. But it turned out to be that was, they had said that. Who wanted the child more, you or Bill? Bill wanted the child, I think, very badly. I, I don't know who wanted it more. I know how much I did. I, I wanted the baby really very badly. But uh, Bill wanted his children too. And he was very, very generous about that. I mean, he never upbraided me. It was because of my ectopics that we didn't have any children. He couldn't. And he never, well, referred to it or implied or made a snide remark about not having that. But I think he wanted children. And children loved him. It's tough to understand things in that area that way, but what people really do want. In fact, it's just part of it is what you really know about how different our perception of alcoholism is today, as you know, because that's the whole thing about the 17 years. I mean, today, frankly, it would be impossible to imagine a woman living with somebody in Bill's condition for 17 years without bringing very, very different standards and criteria to bear upon his conduct, her conduct, how you think about a man who was drunk for 17 years and you stay married to him. That's it. In, in today's parlance, that's mind-blowing. I remember how exciting it was when he was 17 years sober. Our marriage had balanced itself mm-hmm. in 16 years, 17 years. Drunk 17 years sober. Did Bella ever destroy anything you loved? No, well, I don't think so. Um... I was terribly puzzled, uh, disappointed with him and hurt with, because he was, when mother was sick, that he didn't, uh, mother had cancer and she was dying and he was absolutely no help to me at all uh, during that time. That wasn't really destroying something I loved, but. Uh, what about the house in Brooklyn? Your father left you that house. And how did you lose the house? Well, the mortgage company uh, had the house. It had really good. But Dad had borrowed so much from them that he, that, uh, he was only given, well, I've forgotten what it was. It was $2,000 or some small amount of money. I've forgotten what it was for them. And um, the mortgage company was, had, was owning the house. And Dad was paying the $20, and then we paid the $20. And then they had got a, a sale for the house. So they sold the house, and that's when we had to get out. We got out in 39. April, I think it was, of 39. Well, what was Bill doing there? Well, he did. The book was the book was out just about the same time as we moved. It came out in May and he was uh, trying to sell the book. The book was uh, up in Cornwall Press. They hadn't any money to move it to get it out of there. We lived around different places, and they. 
they formed the um, AAs formed the uh, tried to form a fund, Lois Wilson Improvement Fund, <laughs> to raise money for to keep us. We had any money, we didn't have any place to go anywhere. And you say you lived around, where did you live? We lived around. One man had a camp out on out in Jersey on a lake, and we moved out there. Then other friends had a home in Muncie, New York, and we moved out of there. And man had an apartment in Morgan Ryan, handsome Irishman, had an apartment in um, 57th Street, 55th Street, I guess it was. With an extra bedroom, we, we moved there. And the AA got themselves a clubhouse with a 10 by 10 bedroom, and we moved in there. How do you feel about that? Well, I put up with it. Until one day, we were going and coming someplace when we were in Grand Central. And I suddenly sat down on the steps and began crying. I want a home. So it wasn't long after that we did rent an apartment down in the village. What did you do when you lived in other people's houses? Did you sort of have to pay your way by doing housework? Or well, we did. I think of we were in that term in those early days of AA there was tremendous camaraderie if people came to visit you they always uh, you know with help would go out and help it's just uh, everybody's home was everybody else's home it was very communal very uh, communistic mm-hmm. and really wonderful feeling of Belonging, everybody was never embarrassed by him. By having somebody, you weren't embarrassed by having somebody come to your house or by going to anybody's house. Quite an unusual. What was the closest thing ever came to take a look at for that soda? Well, that one I told you about. Then he had another one up here. And you know, we had those two, I think, experiences. The one up here wasn't an emotional thing at all. But um, we moved up here in March of 41. And uh, I had an invitation to go on a cruise. The mother of the same man who led us to camp out on the lake was the sister of more and more McCormick steamship line, freight line. And um, she asked me to go with her down to South America. It was too good an opportunity to miss. 
So I left Bill here. We've been here maybe two days. The barrel's all here in the living room. We'd straighten out as much as we could, but a little bit. But it was in a terrible state. And I went off and left him. Well, he wasn't any any furnace. So just the fireplace. And he caught cold. And he got a bad cough. And he went down to the drugstore and got some cough medicine. And, you know, true to his alcoholic temperament, he thought if one teaspoon is good, six or seven would be six or seven times as good. So he kept nibbling on this uh, cough medicine. Then he began to think, the noise is away. Nobody knows I'm here. And nothing would cure this cold like a little, real strong whiskey. And nobody would know anything about it. Is it just the opportunity to take it? So, when he caught himself thinking that crazy way, and wondered what made him, because he hadn't thought that way in years, couldn't imagine what made him. And finally he looked at the bottle. I don't know, 85% alcohol or something. So that, what? Stronger than scotch. So that little bit of alcohol had changed his thinking. But he didn't take me. But that was kind of might have, but he didn't. At any time, under any circumstances, did you ever think of abandoning Bill? Only as a temporary measure. Only as to help him stop drinking. I never... I thought of it, but I... I recognized that I didn't, I couldn't possibly go through with it. Why not? Any definite. Because I wanted to be with Bill too much. I didn't think I could sacrifice myself enough for him to leave him. Did you think that maybe if you left him it would do him any good? Well, that question came in my mind, wondering if it might do him good. If he was on his own. That maybe, uh, maybe that's what he needed. To be, I don't don't know that I babied him exactly, but I certainly made it easier for him to continue drinking. In many ways, if he didn't have a, a home to go to and any money except what he earned himself. Do you think he would have just ended up in the barry with all those bones if he'd done that? Is that what prevented you from doing it? That was one thing that he might have done. I don't know why he wouldn't. And of course, after he'd been the first time, I guess it was the second time he went to town sanitarium, the doctor told him that he surely would die or go crazy, probably within a year, if he um, didn't stop drinking. Did anybody, ever take, did anybody ever sort of take you by the scruff of the neck 
Did anybody take me by the scruff? And you know, some friend, some relative, somebody can say, Lois, you've got to leave him. You're just ruining your life. Your life is going down with his life. How can you no, think of yourself? A, I think it's a little hard to explain because an ordinary drunk is a terrible lot of nuisance to an awful lot of people and everybody knows about them. They're so loud mouth and noisy and everything. But a lot of people didn't know about Bell's drinking. I kept away from my dearest friend, my oldest friend. I didn't we just didn't see him, see them. My family didn't know about it. And Bill was not a noisy drunk at all. And he was uh, he very quiet and came home and went to bed. So that um, at least there were periods when he was, of course, gay and when the alcohol just made him lively and have a good time. But those periods uh, disappeared after a while and he just was plain sodden. And, and no doctor, doctor said to you, let go, let go, save your own life. The doctor said you'll have to commit him, put him away. Well, what was Bill like just before you put him in that one time when into towns where doctor so forth told you that? What, what was his physical condition? Well, he was able to get there by himself. Without you, or with you, but under his own power. I, I don't, I don't think I ever took him to towns. I think he got there himself every time. Now, did you know he was going? I knew he was going some of the time. Some of the, the last time he went, I did not know he was going. He um, left me a note saying that he had gone, and that's the time he stopped and got a couple of bottles and we drank one in the subway and and waved one when he got into the hospital and said, Hey, Doc, I got something. I found something. And the Doc said, You sure do, did. You better get upstairs to bed. But you never... What was your relationship with the doctor? With Dr. Silkworth? Yeah. Well, he was a very gentle, kindly little man. And it was very sympathetic. He was very sympathetic. And understanding. And Did Bill ever think that Silkworth had sort of let him down by just drawing him out and putting him back on the street where he could just start all over again? No, I don't think so. I think he was always hopeful when he left that he was going to. But now he had something different. Now he's going to be able to do it. Now why? Simply because he got the toxins out of his system? Well, the, um, when, do- when Dr. Silkworth first told him about it, that it was an illness and that he had an allergy to alcohol. He called it an allergy, but he knew that it wasn't strictly such, but it was a different kind of a chemical reaction that he had to alcohol that, that the normal person didn't have. And it wasn't a moral failure on his part. See, that had bothered him tremendously that he hadn't the willpower to stop, because Bill had tremendous willpower along any in any field that he, where he was interested. And at one time I wrote what I called an outpouring, wrote it all down to try and analyze the situation and figure out what was the best thing for me to do. And but he still, in a sense, strangely, deep down, derived great pleasure from it. Because he well, he must have, certainly in the beginning of, of any drug, 
I think after that, I don't think there's any pleasure in it. But in the beginning, you get something out of it that seems to be enough. When he thought it was willpower, and he thought, I should have enough willpower, and it was a failure of his willpower, how did he express his... Oh, he was so remorseful. Such deep remorse. Such tearful remorse. He was really very much beaten down by his own lack of what he thought was morality. Do you remember any specific scenes in all Oh, I remember the mornings after he was just the saddest thing you ever saw. Was he in bed or was he? Well, he'd be in bed very often. You feed him? Did I feed him? Yes, sometimes, but food wasn't of any interest to him. Especially the morning after, he wasn't least bit interested in food. And he never ate while he was drinking. He, um, it's lucky that alcohol has a certain amount of nourishment in it, because <laughs> otherwise an alcoholic would just uh, wither up and die, I guess, from lack of nourishment. Did he come home beat up very often? Occasionally he became beat up. Um, his last big drunk wasn't beat up, but he'd, he'd fallen and... Uh, It was the day that he went to play golf on Armistice Day while I was working. And uh, he came, when I found him in the morning, about five o'clock in the morning, his face was all running with blood and his, his knees were all cut up. And I don't know, and he didn't know how he got, how he got whether he fell down or what happened. He was leaning against the iron grill, the basement door had an iron grill gate. Did he often have the DTs? Yes, he had the DTs several times. He had the DTs in the hospitals. He didn't have the DTs at home, but he had the, after he got off the stuff is when he had the DTs. In the morning after he drunk. The morning, morning after the uh, uh, drunk, yes. When he would, at home, though? Would he wake up with the DTs in the house? No. I, I, well, he'd have slight ones, you know. I mean, had hallucinations. And things well, do you remember the form of his hallucinations? No, I don't. Things crawling on the wall and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't remember particularly. Tell me about... What happens to the sex life of a wife with a drunk? Well, there's very little sex life with a drunk. There is a... When he's sober, when we have these periods in the country and everything, the sex life would return. But um, when a person is so sodden, they're not interested even in sex. How, how did you handle that? Well, I let him be the initiative. <laughs> initiative. You were content to, to be there when it was possible? Yes, of course. You're filled, so filled with either disgust or, or something that you're not particularly... A, a drunk is far from um, enticing sexually. Mm-hmm. 
Did he ever imagine that he was more sexually potent than he was really able to be? Was it the debilitating aspect of, of the alcohol? But sort of like a little boy in a candy store, the mind sometimes wants but the stomach can't hold? Well, you mean that they wish that he would be able yes, to? Yes, well, he probably did. Sure. And what happened after he sobered up? The good. Well, I think there was a period of impotency, and then it came came back all right. He was. But during the years where he was totally drunk, did you even conceive the idea that perhaps he was feeling you that way, and that you had a right to? No, I never did, because I wasn't interested in in any other man in that way. If I had been interested in I think a woman is interested not so much in the subject itself as in, I mean, she personalizes it with an individual and not generalizes it. As True, but then it, uh, it's frequently, what I would say is that it's a counterpart of your needs for emotional attention. Uh, certainly set with a man and for a woman both. It, it's not just a question of, of sex or sexual relief, but quite often it's a feeling of oh, emotional fulfillment, of which sex is an important part. Yes. And if a year or so goes by, or two years goes by with neither of those things. Well, I don't think it was ever that long as a year. I think there were always, even these bad years, we get off to the country. I took him up to Vermont. You had a lifetime of honeymoons in a funny way, didn't you? <laughs> More or less, yes. It's true. Honeymoons and hell in between. Honeymoons and hell in between. In between. <laughs> <laughs> Any particular physical habits or mannerisms? Anything that you, things that you especially remembered about him that you liked, ways he did things? Anything that you didn't especially like? Well, he was a, he was extremely careless about his own person. I was always trying to um, get him to put on a clean shirt. Well, Bill was very, very careless. He never remembered where he put his keys or his fountain pen or his handkerchief. Or, and he was always looking for something, and I'd have to find it for him. And... Um, he would always rather sit than stand and lie than sit. He'd come home and he'd lie down in front of the fireplace, die on the floor. And he'd go to other people's houses. And first thing you know, he'd be lying on the floor. And he was very informal and, as I said, careless, careless about smoking. I was always picking up after him. Um, I was just going to say um, that he, um, it's surprising he didn't burn a house down. Burned the bed, of course, a couple of times, any number, not a couple of times, but a number of times. Seriously, you don't think you had a qualifying apartment ever? Because you can really burn a house down that way. You can burn a house down. No, we always got it out. You had to throw a mattress out the window once. And um, I had this habit of saying, well, Bill, 
that necktie you've been wearing every day this week, you better change it for something like that. Which is a bad habit for a wife to get into. It's very hard to break. And I tried very hard not to nag him, but I think I did nag him. He didn't care much about clothes. He didn't care about clothes. What about that period when things were going well? But when one sensed that uh, after since Bill wanted to be number one, wanted to make all this money, he was making all this money, it was affluence. What was your affluence like? Well, we had a we had a very nice time during that affluence, but it wasn't too long. Um, we had an apartment on Livingston Street in Brooklyn, a very respectable apartment, but it only had three rooms: a living room, a bedroom, and the kitchen. And somebody moved out next door, in the apartment next door. We had the wall taken out in between. And then we had one great big lawn, it was longer than this, not as wide, but longer than this living room here. And um, we had two kitchens, two bathrooms, and two bedrooms, and one great big living room. What did you do with it? Well... Of course, when we had guests, we had a living room for them, which we hadn't had before. And we had friends in. And we, we had the piano, of course, and we did our usual playing in the evening. And we had a very good time with that. But we weren't too long in it. And they, uh, we had taken three years' lease and promised to have the wall put out put back again. Yes, we didn't have it too long before this was in 29 before the stock market crashed. And uh, we lost we lost all his money. Now how much did he have? Was he on his way to being a millionaire? I don't know. Maybe he had half a million. That's pretty close. He was riding that hard. What were his dreams at that point? I don't know. But I do want to finish that up about the uh, houses, about the two, mm-hmm. you said the two apartments. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill had a connection in Montreal. I guess he'd done some work for them up there. And, to my surprise, and his, he wrote them and told them the situation, and they said, come up here. So this was right after the crash, and it was an unusual thing to be able to get started. Uh, Canada wasn't hit with a... Um, Every, everybody else was jumping out of windows, and Bill found a real court in the storm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we moved to Montreal. And for the first six months up there, maybe it was only three months up there, we lived in a furnished apartment. But he began to feel his oats financially. But the... Um, Fine that he was with wasn't hit by the crash, particularly. And um, so we got a quite a magnificent apartment in a new apartment house called Ben Eagles on um, Mount Royal that overlooked the city of uh, Montreal and the Hudson River, and you could see the mountains, the Green Mountains from our windows down into Vermont. So, 
But we had to pay for this other apartment, you see, that we'd left. Although we were able to sublet it, but we couldn't sublet it for anywhere near what we had paid for. We also had to put up the wall. <laughs> put up the wall. <laughs> but now, but Bill was really doing very well. But, That's right. But it was his last quarter call. That's right. And yet, knowing that, and knowing he had nothing to go home to but doom and disaster, he drank his way out of the job. Yeah, that's right. We had a wonderful time up there, though, really. We played golf. He left at 3.30, closing time, stock market or whatever it is. And um, the nights are long up there, and we go and play golf and join the country club. And um, This is during the height of the crowd. That, in a sense, was almost the best period, huh? Yes, I think it was. That was the best period, I think, up there. And why did it go so well? Why did he go so well? Well, because he was a compulsive drinker, I guess. But also, the market did hit. There's also a business reason, too, because Montreal got the backlash very much later than we did. And they they did feel it after a while. They felt they couldn't keep Bill on, especially in his drinking. So I think he just didn't felt show up when he was expected. Did you ever try to prop him up and get him where he belonged? Or? No, I don't think so. I don't think I ever. No Katie outside the barroom door. Huh? No Katie outside the barroom door. I'd go and look for him as I did that time up on the bridge, but I told you about. But um, and then when we were living at this place on Livingston Street in Brooklyn, there was a um, a man from the Filipinos that ran the elevator. And he was devoted to Bill. And he would go, always go, Randolph, his name was, he would go out and find Bill for me. Looking at all the bars and all the saloons, and he'd find Bill for me. It was a Rosicrucian. And he tried to um, convert Bill. And, oh, he was very devoted to Bill. And Bill, to kind of pay him back for all that he did, because he run errands for him, you know, and get liquor for him, too. In spite of his being a <laughs> But, um, he offered... Randolph told him about his daughter, how, how she was taking music lessons and wanted to... And did, oh, he did wish that he had a piano for her, because she had to go to a neighbor's house. Because they didn't have a piano. She had to do all the practice. So Bill made a check, I guess, for $2,500 or something like that. $2,500? Yes, to give Randolph a... Have Randolph got a piano for the daughter. So... Was that a gesture of which you approved, or did it seem excessive? <laughs> it seemed a little bit excessive to me. <laughs> that was during the two-apartment period when yep. he was doing real well. Yes. That's very interesting what you told me about Bill's physical qualities, his lying down. Do you remember any other things like that about Bill? Well, she loved to walk, but he believed in, in deep breathing. Walking in deep breathing, and he make, um, takes so many steps to every breath. As he was in. Is that part of when he was drunk or when he was sober? This was, well, he did it partly to when he was getting off a drug, not while he was drinking. 
theory was to pump a lot of oxygen. Yes, and it was after when he got emphysema that he did it too. Did he did it to help him. Did he smoke as much before? He always smoked when he drank, except that he started smoking heavily after he drank. Right? No, he's, he stopped. He smoked all the time. He smoked a lot. Very heavily. Did he try to give up smoking? Or was that just yes, a couple of times he did, but he he didn't get very far with it. See if I can think of anything else about his habits. Because he slouched down like this yeah, and put up his feet. He liked how his feet high on his head. He was a great storyteller. His father was a marvelous storyteller. What kind of stories did he tell? Well, he told humorous stories. Some of them were long, drawn out. Um, Bill talked a lot once he got started, and he was very hard to interrupt. <laughs> and he did not listen too well to other people. <laughs> and he would really force his way almost uh, in an uh, argument. What were you arguing about? Politics, he, uh, he argued about a lot of things. He was quite an arguer. Well, at any point, especially when he um, got into AA, he, he uh, thought about these things very deeply, and he had opinions, and they were usually the result of very careful thought, so that he felt everybody should agree with him. And one thing I must tell you that annoyed me very much about Bill was that he just would sit. He would sit and sit. And I'd be putting around because I'm a do-it now person and I have to be, I'm a putter I have to be doing something all the time. But Bill was probably doing far more constructive thinking, accomplishing more really in the end than I was with all my puttering around. Um, but when there were things to be done, he just sit. And that was very annoying. Did he ever imitate people? I don't think he was a mimic. He always gave people names, some funny kind of a name. He stuck on everybody had a... Did he have a name for you? Oh, well, that's kind of an interesting thing. He had a doll when he was a little boy. And then he was given... This was a rubber doll, I think. And he was given a hatchet. One time he cut off the doll's... The doll's name was Susie, and he cut off the doll's head with a hatchet, Christmas time, and he had a drawer where his toys were, and he'd open the door, and he'd sit in his pile, oh, Susie, I cut off a head with a hatchet. The head was just hanging by a thread. So then, later in life, I don't know whether he ever connected it, but I always wonder what the, what the, um, uh, subconscious was, he began calling me Susan. So, <laughs> I never knew. Just, I never worked that one out. I don't know. better not to ask. <laughs> but you never bought him a hatchet. <laughs> I never bought him a hatchet. <laughs> Before he started calling you Susan, did he just call you Lois? Or? Yes, of course he used a lot of pet names. And, uh, like what, for instance? Just the usual ones, I can't think of any at the moment. You know, Darling and Deering and Sweetheart and Lover and all kinds of things like that. Was there ever a time when you said to yourself, well, this is how it is and this is how it's always going to be. I'm going to be married to a helpless drunk for the rest of his life and my life. I accept it. Well, that time I told you about when I wrote this all down, I came to 
the conclusion that I was going to try my best to um, to help him get over it. But if if he did um, keep on drinking, which it seemed as if he likely to be, I would just keep on loving him. That was the end of that thing. Keep on trying to love him. See, I, I was thinking then of that, I, that my whole life had been wasted, that it had been just, um, that all this. This is the end of part two. We now conclude our conversation with Lois Wilson. There's all this affection that I've been wasting on him. I had been wasted. All this affection that I've been giving him, I've been wasted. But I ended up back in the same old rock that I keep on doing it. You know, like, in a sense, you had a face out. I mean, you were a person of some ambition when you married him. You must have had personal ambitions of your own. That feeling of having made a terrible wrong decision must have come over you. Mm-hmm, yes. Because I've been afraid of what, what I tried to do, and he was afraid of what he tried to do, and we just too afraid You saw no way out of that. Did I what? You saw no way out of that. I saw no way out of it. But, strangely, I don't know whether it's so in most everybody or not, but hope springs eternal in the human breast. Sometimes the hope must have been very good at straws that you passed that day. Very, very weak straws. You give up, but then hope does return. Hope always did return. Tell me, did you have any real ambition? Well, I studied interior decorating before I went to Macy's, before I got the job at Macy's. And I applied for the interior decorating department. And they said you have to sell first in French department. So, so that was supposed to be a step. I worked through, I was willing to, you know, go through the um, process of getting there by working in the furniture department. But then, of course, I left Macy's and I had to begin all over again. And I did that again in, in Loges in, in Brooklyn. And I got in the furniture department there. And then I did get in the interior decorating department, finally at the end. And when I left, I did a few jobs in interior decorating on my own. Um, but I didn't carry it on. There's too much going on in the Brooklyn house, too many drunks around. Did Bill ever tell you that he wished he was dead? That he wished he was dead? Yes, once, or, once in a while when he was very blue. Do you remember a specific time? You know, Bill had depressions as well as uh, as alcoholism, and I don't know whether there's something physical too, as well as alcoholism being something physical, whether they have any connection with alcoholism. Did he ever really uh, encourage you to help him kick the bucket? Did he ever say, oh, no. put me out of my misery? No, he never. Push me off the end of the pier, throw me off the edge of the building, just no. end it for me? I don't, I don't have the courage to do it myself? No, he never was that he never just a vagrant wish to be. Mm. Did you ever wish maybe it would be, not wish, did you ever think maybe it would be just better for him if he, if he were to die? So he was so bad off that... Well, the idea occurred to me, but it never stayed with me very much. I never, never really thought it. I mean, I never really wished it. 
Well, the idea is the idea that flashes through your head, you know, but always would be that hope with, as I say, but that he'll get over this. About your miscarriages, how you had how many and how old were you when you had them? Well, now they were in 23, I think, 22 and 23. I was born in 91. So that's nine years and 23. 32. And 32. That was your first miscarriage when you were 32. And um, I think the first one was before that. I think it was probably when I was 31. It was quite a number of years after the MRI. And you had a couple of miscarriages? Three. Three. And that's unusual because uh, the first one I had, my father is a gynecologist, and he took me home to his house and uh, Mother was alive, of course, and looked after me there. And although the tube was burst, burst, yet um, I was able to recover. I was strong and well, and was able to recover. So that one wasn't operated on. But then I had two others that were operated on. And then one of them, Developed a cyst and I didn't get well, didn't get well, didn't get well. And so I had to have another operation. We both wanted children badly. Bill was crazy about children. And his early letters, a lot of them all, hoping for that Bill had children. Well, did you feel bad that somehow you hadn't... Oh, I felt very guilty about that. You did? Yes, I. but I hadn't any business to... I mean, I felt that it was nothing that I did that that prevented it. Yet, nevertheless, I was the means of his not having, I was the reason for his not having children. So, therefore, I felt guilty about that. And I'm very, very sorry that I, that I hadn't been able to give him children. Did you express that to him? Yes. Did you feel that if you had children, it would have made a difference with the alcoholism? No, I don't think it would have made any difference with the alcoholism. I think I thought so. At the time, I thought that it would help a lot if we had children. But I doubt if it would have really, because I think it was a, an illness. Do you ever think, thank God we didn't have children, that they should be able to witness this? Well, I thought since AA has developed so wonderfully, that if we'd had children, that probably neither one of us would have paid attention to it as we had. That we, it might not have gotten the start that it did in the beginning. If we had children. Because he would have just sort of stuck to his own problem of sobriety instead of being... Instead of trying to help Give his whole life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Might have been. And because he would have had... He wouldn't have been able to spend the time if I'd had... I mean, I, I apparently was able to support myself. But if there were little children... He couldn't give the time to look after other alcoholics. He'd have to get a job. When your mother died and he was gone, well, what was that like? What happened? Do you remember? Well, mother had uh, cancer. And she had cancer of the bone. And she had... Um, we'd been up in... Uh, we'd been up in Montreal. We came down Bill was... Flat broke and, and kicked out, and he had no place to go. 
We'd spent all our money, I mean, we'd spent it very foolishly up there. And I mean, we didn't have any bank account left, anything left at all. So, um, we went to Clinton Street to live. Mother had come up to visit us while we were in Montreal. And she liked to walk and hike around. So we'd done quite a lot of hiking together. And went, soon after when she came, when she left, she uh, got sick. And it, it turned out that she had cancer of the bone. I've forgotten myelitis, osteomyelitis. I felt guilty about that. I mean, that I, that maybe I shouldn't have taken her walking so much. But of course, I didn't know she was going to. She had this, and she didn't seem to know it either. And the doctors told me it had nothing, although my dad told me it had nothing to do with it. So. But she had to go and have radium treatments supposed to New York all the time. And this was, this was in the summer of 30. And of course, uh, Bill knew that she was terribly sick. And she kept getting sick and sick and Now, was she upstairs in, in your actual house at the time? In the, yes, on 82 Clinton Street, she was up there. So you were living downstairs and she was right above you? No, we were on the top floor, Bill and I were, and she was just below us. Well, she kept getting sicker and sicker and he knew it. And he didn't. uh, Finally she died on Christmas Day and Bill was no, he'd gone off, he was no place to be seen. He didn't uh, come back and he didn't and I don't remember him at all in connection with coming home I can't tell you whether, whether he came home that night or not was he up and dropped upstairs when she was down right below? yes yes he was mm-hmm. did you try to get him to go down and visit her well he was devoted to mother he thought my mother was the finest person he'd ever met he just loved her did he ever go down and visit her drunk? I think it's slightly drunk, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think he did. Did she know? And she, she was fond of him, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. Did she know what, what a kind of a drinker he was? She, she'd been with you in Montreal, I feel. Yes. Yes, she knew. Did she yeah. try to straighten him out? Yes, she talked to him quite often. But it didn't do any. Any good? I have, I have um, some beautiful letters that Bill wrote, Mother. Did you want to sort of feel that as much as she obviously had affection for Bill, knowing the problem, what was what was going on? Did she ever sort of say, "My God"? Save yourself, Lois. No, she one time said to me, I don't see how this can be enough for you. And that's the closest thing she was. Came to any criticism. You don't even remember when Bill came back drunk after you mother died and what the scene was like between the two of you then. Or do you remember? Can you remember? Well, of course, lots of times, which is a very... Foolish thing to do. I'd upbraid Bill when he was drunk and would just fly off him, you know, like a 
as if the wind were blowing a leaf off his shoulder. But um, I should have done it when he was sober. But then he was so repentant, that's the trouble, he was so remorseful that I felt my job was to get him out of it, out of the doldrums, more than making it worse for him. I didn't yell at him when he was sober, no. It was when he was drunk. And then it didn't do the least bit of good. At what point did you feel the most hopeless about Bill? What period was the worst? I think it was the worst when I just thought I'd have to look after him all the rest of my life, probably. Towards the year in the 19. 32 and 33 when I was just home drinking and nothing else. No relief of sobriety in between. No periods of sobriety, just <laughs> drunkenness all the time. But in a sense, some of the worst periods in your marriage, as you've already told me, really came after you so well. Yes, I think so. They were the most confusing because I, di- I didn't know where where I stood. And um, I think Bill was 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 a period of when he was only took lukewarm interest, I think, in our, in our marriage at that time. Um, I mean, he was so absorbed with all the work he was doing that he just um, didn't think of... He mentioned about the sex. I can't remember what the sex was. What, what that was business was right in there, whether it was, whether we bothered about sex even. But I know, as I told you, that there was a period when, that he was, after he sobered up, when he was not able to, but just how long it lasted, I don't think it was very long. I think he was, and then of course he was three months in Aquin, which was an awfully long time. And that was an awfully kind of a dull, stupid time for me. What were you doing during that time? While Bill was in Aqua? As I was working. Oh, I once... He wanted me to go to the Oxford group. I wasn't too interested. I went once or twice. Because he asked me to. And I went to visit over weekend some people we'd been working with. Lived out in the country. And I went there, went to Akron on my vacation, and met Bob and Ann. That's amazing in retrospect, because you were so immensely charismatic in this whole AA thing. And that during these drinking years, he managed to be in a situation where he couldn't use it at all. He had all these gifts for leading men, for motivating people. You know, as you pointed out, he could have been the president of the company very easily. He had all the great qualities for that. Mm-hmm to lead and motivate men and work with men and all that. He had a habit of making himself, downgrading himself. So not to see the other way. <laughs> because he thought there was such a power drive. Because he thought what? So as not to see the other way. In, yes. In the sense, therefore, he was... Conscious of that drive in himself so strongly. Mm-hmm. Well, he did have a, he had a terrific power drive. There's no two ways about that. And money meant power to him. I don't think it meant 
Oh, a house at Newport News or anything, or Newport, I mean, or anything of that sort. I think it meant being able to manipulate people and get what they wanted. But I don't think he was money-hungry, really, in itself. I think it was just because it gave him power. Did he have a great yen to be with sort of the really rich, the really most powerful people during that time when he was in the market? And did he see himself associating with the Fords and the Rockefellers and the real power brokers in this country? And well, I think so. I'm speaking of power people in a different sense in the scientific world. There's an interesting um, episode, and I was going to tell you about it when we were talking about the B3. Bill and I went to the Virgin Islands one time for vacation. And we met J. Robert Oppenheimer there. He was staying at the same place. And Bill and he got to be good friends. And Bill told him, of course, about it. And J. Robert Oppenheimer advised him to, as long as Bill was nearly through with all the structure of AA and uh, the necessary jobs were done, that he should then go to Princeton's research department and start researching the chemical um, analysis of alcoholism, the chemical side, physical chemical side. Of course, he never went to... um, Princeton and he never did any real research about it but he took the word of a couple of doctors that another big shot name Aldous Huxley had introduced him to um, Dr. Hoffa Abram Hoffa and um, Humphrey Osmond he took their research for granted into the chemical properties of alcoholism and how the B3 was helpful. So then he got interested in uh, telling the, the AA doctors about that and he wrote several booklets on it and pamphlets. On it. And the last five years, I guess, of his life, he was um, working with that yeah. aspect. Speaking of Rockefeller, big names, so to speak, star names, that Rockefeller thing, you know, that, was, he, was he terribly disappointed when the old man staged this whole thing and didn't cough up any money? Yes, he was at the time. I think he was disappointed at the time. Bitter? I, what? Bitter? No, I, think, I don't think he was bitter. I think he saw the sense of humor. How funny it was when all this... And they had this big dinner and all these millions of dollars walked out. I mean, you always told it was, really, you know, in a funny way about them. I don't think it was better. But I think he soon saw the uh, sense of sense that, that, Dr., that Mr. Rockefeller had displayed in not giving them money. And then, of course, now, I don't know if you've ever read the tradi- traditions of AA, it's hard for me to talk sometimes. The um, 12 traditions, mm-hmm. of course, it's uh, taking money is uh, 
is now against our traditions. I have the first book that ever came off the press. Really? Of the, of the first big book? Mm-hmm. That's a very valuable... To Lois, whose loving care and fortitude in our dark days together made these pages possible. So to her, this first book of the first edition is lovingly and thankfully given, Bill. In memory of the fifth Christmas, 12-25-39. Note, this was the very first AA book off the press. We used thick paper to make the alcoholics feel they were getting their money's worth. Stepping stones, April 1957, Bill. What's this? Is this a, a poem of... of um who, who put this in? I did. His wife. Oh, you wrote this. One time there was a funny man who lived at 182. He had so many drunks around who didn't know what to do. So he nursed some, he razzed some, he taxied some to Bellevue. Yet the oddest thing about him was he really fixed a few. <laughs> <laughs> His wife. Have you seen this before? I've seen it. I haven't read that. These are... Um, all quotes from Bill, from one thing or another, one place mm-hmm. or another. And he didn't he didn't uh, compile this or do anything about it. It was compiled by the AA office, but uh, they're all his writing. But I'm very proud of this, so I... Well, would you read it? <laughs> okay. Sweetheart, in a very real sense, this little book symbolizes the culmination of our lives together. As you will forever live in my heart, so will you live always in these pages, in eternal love and gratitude, Bill. So I think that's very sweet. Now let me just ask you, as long as we've got that machine rolling, I think we have... And we turned it off, didn't you? No, we turned it back. I wanted to... Oh, see, I turned it back on for that. We just have a, a minute or two, but I'd love you to comment on this. As it relates to you and Bill, our loyalty and the desire that our husbands hold up their heads and be like other men have begotten all sorts of predicaments. We have been unselfish and self-sacrificing. We have told innumerable lies to protect our pride and our husband's reputation. We have prayed, we have begged, we have been patient. We have struck out viciously. We have run away. We have been hysterical. We have been terror-stricken. We have sought sympathy. We have had retaliatory love affairs with other men. Our homes have been battlegrounds. Our friends have counseled chucking the men. And we have done so with finality, only to be back in a little while, hoping. And so forth. But some of those things must apply to you and Bill. Oh, yes, some of them do, definitely. They don't all. When did you strike out the most viciously? Uh, you must have. Well, if you call losing my temper, striking out viciously. I did that. And, that. and you did that when he was drunk, as you told me before. Mm-hmm. Not when he was sober. Not when he was sober, when he was drunk. I, you, I didn't have a retaliatory love affair. Did he ever embarrass or humiliate you in front of other people? Yes, and my brother Roger said... Bawled me out and told me I had no business bringing Bill around when he had had anything to drink. We went to the concert. Mother was singing in a glee club and 
And the rest of the family went to the concert. And Bill, we talked loud, and he was uh, had to get up and go to the bathroom a couple of times, so maybe he would start to get some drink. And disturbed people walking back and forth. But nothing, you know, very bad, but that's... He did that kind of thing, but my brother, Rogers, thought it was very bad taste on my part to bring him along. Well, he only seemed a little drunk to me. (laughs) During the later years, both you and and Bill, both of you really, in a sense became saints. Well, I know what you mean. You mean if we... Symbolized to the group. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about that? How did you feel about that? Well, I think he felt the way I do about it. He didn't. He didn't think it was too healthy to have them think. To you know, to get too emotional about it. That he wanted to be treated just as another human being, and unfortunately, he could never really go to a meeting and be just like another an ordinary AA. Mm-hmm. Because once he got there, he was, um, even though they didn't know him where, where he went to begin with, somebody was bound to say, well, Bill Wilson is here. And then then he was the big shot. So he never could really participate just the way the other AAs did. And he felt I was kind of sad about that because he would have liked to have done it. But um, I think he also felt that he was just a symbol for something, and that's the way I very definitely feel that I <clears throat> I recognize that people almost always have to put up some kind of a symbol and call it an idol even. Uh, and that... Um, they attribute all kinds of characteristics that are there. And that's a natural thing. And then I am a symbol throughout to Alamon. And I just know that they, um, if you want to call it, that they worship, if you want to put it that strong. Um, because of the symbolism, not because of Lois Wilkes and the individual. When somebody came up to Bill in that worshipful way, he had a meeting, for instance, and the word would get out of that's Bill Wilson. What would happen? How would they treat him? How would he react? Did he ever get upset about it? Did he, ever, did he always make fun of it? We made fun of it. He made fun of it quite often. And he, he turned it off. He could turn it off in a in a natural and sometimes a very funny way. He was a, he was very good at turning it again off and off. You think part of him sort of enjoyed that? Right? Well, I, I think it's almost impossible to be a, to be a completely humble person. When Bill was in Akron. When Bill was in Akron. Akron. Oh, in Akron. Akron. He was always an actor in a sense. <laughs> You pointed out what the circumstances were between the two of you. Uh, your confusion, I think you put it, about what life would be like and how it would work when he came home. Well, could you tell me more about that? What was it like when he came home? And there he was, sober, and there he was, dedicated, 
He had a purpose. He had all these people who became very busy. What was it like between the two of you right then? Well, we did not have the companionship that we did have in the beginning. When he was drinking, we were not dependent upon each other to, to the same extent because he had other people to depend upon and other sources of interest. As I um, told you when he began to write the book, he left. He didn't ask me to write the chapter on wives, which I had hoped he he would. We had discussed this situation together. We found that we were both disappointed that uh, the families of alcoholics weren't as happy as they seemed as they should be. After this, of course, excuse me for interrupting myself here, but this really is not immediately upon returning. This is from Akron. This is a little bit later because it took some time to recognize that the families weren't as happy as they should be. After they mates had sobered up and as the, when they have this, really this beautiful program to live by, we thought that would be enough to make any family happy. But all the little everyday things that were there all the time, but were always blamed on alcohol, showed up. And um, you saw that alcohol wasn't the only thing that you had to, all kinds of, of things that you had to adjust to and that you had to change in yourself to make a happy and contented uh, partnership. It had always been so one-sided before. But so I found this personally with myself, of course, and then, then I looked around and saw it was so in other families as they sobered up. But unless they, unless the families of the alcoholics had some interest in, in, in growing themselves and changing them, they were old habits. The family was not happy. It's an odd situation. What you're describing to me is a situation where, while the man is drunk, it was all give and no take on your part, in a sense. You gave all the love and tender loving care, support, tolerance, forgiveness, accepted abuse of one sort or another. Then mm-hmm. he went and got sober. It was hard. And then it was all give and no take again, because instead of his in a sense, reciprocating for all those years, he now said, oh, by the way, I don't need you. Yes. And it was more give on your part, and more take on his part, because you have now understand that he belonged to something that was consuming him in a different way. And the adjusting period is even harder than the drinking period sometimes. Because you you don't expect it for one thing. You think it's going to be, and you're surprised about it, and you're not ready for it, and you're expecting something different. And um, you don't realize your own distortion. I have any idea about that at all. Because you've gotten to feeling smug about yourself. You were on the credit side of the ledger all this time. Of course, most Alamon members, even today, come into Alamon to get their husbands over, not to change themselves. When you look back yourself over those 17 years, how did you make it easier? What was your specific technique for making it easier? Well, I think I 
tried to convey a little bit about the last time that the, uh, just my um, fact that my supporting him and giving him a home and giving him love that he began to take for granted that he felt that that would go on indefinitely. It was I don't think he recognized it so much within himself then, but I think he, I think it was certainly a subconscious uh, reaction that he he had something to look out after him anyway. So why did you really marry him? I married him because I loved him. Were you criticizing your family for marrying somebody much younger than you? Did my family criticize me? Mm-hmm. I don't understand how my family was so um, understanding about it because it was a most, I should think it would be most undesirable marriage for, for, for my parents' standpoint. Because he was younger, because he was immature in certain ways, and because he had no business or no knowledge of what he wanted to do or be. So they should have been, you can imagine how easily could have been critical. But they weren't. But they weren't, yes. Because they had adopted him sort of... I think because they, I think because they had, they practiced a tremendous amount of, of trust and faith in their own children. And if that's what they wanted to do, then that was it. Now, when you were having your troubles after you reformed, did you ever pack up? Did you ever even come close to packing up and saying, look, it's just not working. We live in the 20th century now. Your mother's been divorced. Divorce is a possible thing. Maybe you should go your way and I should go my way. Well, I think I said about the time I went to Washington for the week. For a week. But was that, that was when he was drunk. That was when he was drunk. But when he was sober. When he had reformed. Oh, when he when he reformed. No, no. No, I never did. No matter how unhappy or confused it was, how much he seemed not to need you, how apart you were. Of course, that was only a phase, really, that we went through for a period. But during that phase... And I, I kept trying to kid myself all the time that it wasn't there, you know, because, uh, because of my tremendous idealism about my marriage and about marriage generally. It was only when I tried to be very honest with myself and came right down the vast tax did I recognize the fact that this, all these things were going on which weren't so very um, present. So wasn't there a part of you that was thinking, not especially over that guy, not over that drug, but part of you that said, I'm not needed here. I like to be needed. Maybe I'll go somewhere else where I am. Yes, but love has so many different components. The need of the amount of need is, of course, a very large one. But there's also a great deal else not beside that. Mm-hmm. So... Well, but didn't you need something, too, and that maybe you weren't getting? I needed something for so many years that I wasn't getting it. <laughs> I never knew that. You had the idea that he should use the house equipment and put the dress there. Was it your idea? I don't remember that it was my idea mm-hmm. at all. Well, what was that like anyway? I mean, there you were, you were working. You were working at Macy's then or something? We had all kinds of experiences. Some ludicrous, some tragic, and some inspiring. When you say ludicrous, do you remember any that were particularly ludicrous? Well, this one man went around the house with a knife, with a butcher knife, chasing another. 
Both of them so drunk that hardly <laughs> Kind of ridiculous. Should you endangered in any of those guys? Oh, that Endangered? Oh, well, I don't. I suppose it was kind of dangerous, but nothing really happened. About it. And there were some very funny things about one of them. There was a little fat man. He was certainly not any taller than I was, but about as wide as he was tall. <clears throat> and he uh, got stuck in the wash tubs downstairs, taking a bath in there. And he couldn't get out. And he yelled. <laughs> He yelled for me to come down and get him out. And that was a ludicrous... <laughs> a ludicrous situation. Situation. How do you feel... How did you feel about having to do all that work after putting in a day's work? Well, I let the boys look after themselves a lot. And they weren't always... I didn't always feed them. For instance, this boy lived down in the basement and he fed himself down there. He had a kitchen. The old family kitchen needed. He lived in the kitchen in the dining room. There was a cot in the dining room. So. Took his bath in the wash tubs. Mm-hmm. How many did you have at any one time? Well, I don't think we ever had any more than five living, living at the house. Did you have to kick some of them out? Did I have to Eventually kick some of them out. Oh, yes. We kicked him out, and you give me the old they people? left, and... Uh, what did you give me the depot for? I mean, what, what inspired you to kick somebody out? Well, um, it, was, um, it was this boy, Alec Johnson, that went with Bill. But when Bill went to the mission down 23rd Street after Abby had first come to him, and talked with him, and before Bill went to the hospital, he wanted to see, he was still curious about what Abby had said, and he wanted to go over to this mission and see what it was like. So he got off at 23rd Street in the subway, and I think I told you something about this, and he took, he went along and um, stopped at all the bars, and almost forgot what he was going for except that at this last one the man he got talking with the man and they asked him what he did and he said oh I'm a fisherman somehow or other that struck Bill fishers of men oh I was going down to the mission so he grabbed Alec along took Alec with him and Alec stayed at the mission and then came over to our house they called him Buckets because he used to swab down the deck all the time and he came and lived at our house for three or four months and then he got the wanderlust and left and then he um, he came back after two weeks, maybe something like that, and wanted money. And I gave him some money. He was he was sober. 
And I gave him some money and he went off again. And then he came back drunk and wanted money and I wouldn't do And I told him he couldn't come back until he, until he was sober. But he never came back. Was was there anybody who was in residence? I don't think there was anybody that could just. I don't think so. I I wouldn't. I wouldn't let Abby in. I wouldn't let them in when they were drunk. The same fat man. I wouldn't let him in. He came to the front door. And I wouldn't let him in. So he went down the coal chute. <laughs> then what? Then you couldn't kick him out. So then, well, I didn't know he was in the house. Because he cut down into the cell. That's wonderful. The cold shit. I didn't know he was in the house. <laughs> so there were very funny things about that man. The food must have been pretty good. Although you say you never worried much about a fancy meal, you, you probably provided something that was very attractive. Well, one day I asked them, um, asked them all up from pancakes. And the other boys got there, but Wes, the fat man, didn't get there as early as the other. And finally, when he did, they were almost all gone. So, um, I gave him what was left, maybe two or three pancakes, something like that. And he was very sullen all the time. Yeah. He was eating <laughs> And then he, he suddenly got up and put on his hat and the boy said, where are you going? And he said, to child for pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> who was the one who needed you, as you put it, the other day? Who was he? Yeah, well, he was another man younger, a good deal, much younger than I was. I don't know his name or anything. I'm just curious about what that was like. Well, he was an attractive young man and a very intelligent young man. One of the brightest ones that he had. And attractive and then... He had a band when he was at college, or got out of college for a singer. He'd also worked for Time Life. But then after that, he inherited some money and he didn't have, I don't think he had any other, hardly any other real job ever. But by needing me, he seemed, he seemed to want my help. Mm-hmm. What circumstances? But the circumstances have? weren't any more needful mm-hmm. than a lot of the others. What were you going to say? Under what circumstances did he come to the house? The building? I think he was a friend of the fat man's. And what were the circumstances under which he left? Well, he left because he realized Bill was jealous of him. He left because of that incident, because he thought it would be wiser. He was really quite an intelligent man. I find myself, even in the way you're telling it to me, which is very relatively objective and unemotional and discreet, uh, I find it very, very touching. A touching about you, touching about the man, and e- equally as touching about Bill. But he was jealous. The fact that the man ultimately had the tact and discretion to leave is to me very affecting. I don't but anyway, to go on about that guy, we, you say he's, he's still around, he's sober, he's been sober for many years. But Bill was jealous. And I'm, I'm curious to know about how that worked. Well, like, what I, did Bill see that made him jealous? I don't mean, did he find your necking in the closet or something like that? But, okay. but what, what did happen? Well, well, I told him about it, you see. Again, my, um, 
naivety, if you will, of my frankness. Uh, I told Bill and how upset I was about the thing. So um, to find that I could be that I could be so interested in it, I was upset about myself being interested in, it, in another man at all for any reason. It made me extremely unhappy, well, and I told to, Bill well, about to. that. It was really mainly about me. That's one of the few times in this whole story, as you've told it to me, that you've said, Hey, Bill, pay attention to me. <laughs> I, I got a problem. I want you to think about me for a second instead of you, your drunks, <laughs> your sober, your wealth, you made a deal, you didn't make a deal. Uh, this, this is me, Lois. Uh, I got something happening here. You better pay attention to me. How did you react to that? Well, as I tell you, I was terribly unhappy. I was terribly unhappy. Because of... Even even the the little bit that there was, it uh, seemed to be enough to, um, well, when I say the little bit that there was, even the little bit of of emotional feeling that I had for this man seemed to be enough to dim, to take dim off my ideal that I should have lived up to. So... I say it made me terribly unhappy. So, I was, what, so what did Bill do? I was, well, Bill went off and tried to get drunk. At least, didn't try to, but expected he was going to get drunk. And this was well after he was sober. Mm-hmm. So this was well after he started yes. AA. I mean, this, this wasn't during one of the interim periods of the counting. Oh, no, this was after that. So he was really AA with it. Mm-hmm. And when he went off to get drunk... But this was before the book was written, because... But it was after uh, Akron. It was after Akron. Um, well, did he get drunk? Did he go to a bar no, and have some drinks? No, he didn't go to drunk. He went to a friend's house. He just saw those other drunks and he couldn't realize he'd be letting them down. He couldn't do it. But his reaction, in a sense, was... I don't want to think about you. I think I'll create a situation where we have to think about me. <laughs> Maybe so. Isn't that true? I guess so. That's a very interesting episode. <laughs> At what point did Bill discover, this is about the emphysema, that he had only a few more years to live? And what was his reaction to that? What did he say to you? What did you say to him? Well, I don't think he ever put it that way, that he only had a few more years to live. Um, Nobody had a sort of pronounced a death sentence on him and said, no, you've got a very severe emphysema and you've got maybe two, three years and then that's it. No, I don't think there was ever a death sentence for him. So you no. but, but there must have been some moment where you and he recognized. Oh, yes, there was. Of course, I tried to always make it seem, I remember, always make it seem as if I didn't believe that it was going to die. But there was one time when I just prayed every day. Couldn't uh, pretend anymore. 
So he was lying on the bed upstairs, and I just threw myself down beside him and cried and cried and cried. And he's, I didn't say anything, but he seemed to know what I was thinking, and he kind of tried to comfort me, so... And I think we all, we both of us knew at that time that I, that we both realized that he was, couldn't go on very much further. But usually I didn't, I didn't cry in front of him or show him that I was. Did you ever cry during all those years of drinking? Oh, yes, I cried when he was drunk, but that didn't do much good. I cried to myself a tremendous amount when he wasn't, when he wasn't around. Imagine your life married to someone other than Bill. Someone utterly competent, mature, civilized, with no problem, no drinking problem. What would that like have been like? Did you ever contemplate that? <laughs> Might have been so. <laughs> Did you marry Bill because you sensed in him, perhaps, because I some was. terrible, destructive need or thirst, which responded to some terrible thirst in you? Well, that's what psychiatrists all say. And what they also say is that... Uh, and what's been proved in 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 AA and in Alman over and over again, woman marries a drunk, they get divorced, or he dies or something, she marries another drunk. And maybe he goes and she marries a third drunk. It's happened over and over again. In other words, some maybe some deep seated need that you don't recognize yourself. Um, I didn't recognize it, no. Is that what but there may have been, there may have been that within me. I chose a younger man, and I had to kind of, um, you know, set the stage very often for a lot of development of our love affair. So, it may have been, I don't know. That's interesting. I wouldn't say it wasn't, but I didn't recognize it. But that sense of mothering and nursing and all that, the taking care of phenomena, that didn't surface you in any other way other than toward him and these other drugs. No, I did occupational therapy, yes, which was... With the crazies. With the crazies, yes. I suppose you drank less during the years he was drunk because you couldn't have liquor around. That's right. And you didn't want to drink until oh, I, I didn't. I didn't drink too much to, during the years when he was drunk. Only what, like that one time I put on the show as I told about getting drunk. When you went on that little two, just that little show, how did that end up again? Well, he was fine the next morning. And you had that hangover. Did, and he, I, have to, did he have to tuck you in that night? Did you get so liquor and drunk that night? Oh yes, night? he had to tuck me in that night. You were out. Yes. <laughs> Did you use it to, to scare him? I mean, or did you use it just to, re- to get some relief, some release? 
No, I, I think I did it to show him what a fool he was. I'm silly acting. But it didn't do any good. At least that was what I thought my motive was. I don't know what my motive really was. Do you think any other women tried to seduce him, quite apart from whether he was interested or not? We'll ask Nell Wig, maybe she knows, because she was his Who? secretary. So she was his secretary for the last 27 years. Yes, but but Bill didn't, wasn't all that time needing a secretary. I mean, it was five years before he passed away. Passed away in 71. He wasn't, well, he was, she wrote letters, yes, maybe for him, if he had anything to to write about. Yeah. And and she'd have, yes, she'd have lots of things about Bill's characteristics. It's, yeah, it's, it's his habits and his, she knew Knew Bill really very well. Who were Bill's cronies uh, who I might talk to who really knew him well? I think that, I think Nell is also the person to consult about that because she has been doing these archives and getting people to talk about the early days and <clears throat> getting them to write about them. Would Hershon have a lot to say about what Bill was like if I saw him? Yes, in a superficial sort of way. Uh, we might tell you what he's like from his, on the stock market. I mean, what right. he felt on his uh, about his um, intelligence uh, mm-hmm. in the way of buying. But he did drink himself out of a job with Hershon once. Yeah. Well, Joe Hershon is a is a funny little Jewish gentleman. Um, he always speaks of Bill uh, of AA's being AAA. Well. Bill, how's your AAA? But he knows nothing about it. Has really no interest in it particularly. But just as glad that Bill is sober. But of course, Joe really took him out when he was drunk and, and took him down the back elevator. This was in Montreal, in uh, uh, Toronto, I think. And Bill went there to see him. That's the last time they saw each other for many, many years. When he took him out, but took him down the freight elevator. Because Bill wasn't registered. He let him sleep there on the sofa. I guess Joe probably had a suite and let him sleep on the sofa. But he wasn't registered at the hotel. So I think Joe got tired of this. This was only for two or three days. Three or four days. I don't know how long. Days exactly. But then he he finally took him out. Said, this is it, Bill. Took him down the freight elevator. This Hirschhorn, in a way, at that time up in Canada, sort of his last best hope to make a living at any time. Is that Hirschhorn's last best hope? No, it was Bill's last best hope. Oh, yeah, maybe. So when he said this was it, Bill, he was really condemning him to maybe, as far as he knew, the bottom, the Bowery. Did Bill ever go looking in the Bowery for drunks? They've had Bowery drunks in AA. Mm-hmm. What did Bill think of the Salvation Army? I think he respected it. I don't think it, he thought it cured drugs particularly, but he respected it for never uh, having any, well, it would go to any lengths. Never had any limits to the help that it would give. It would try to give away so many things like the Oxford group did. He wanted to just, scout up candidates. Yes, the mission, which was more or less, that was way east on 23rd Street. So it was near the bar. It was near the bar. Just a little north of it. And it had a lot of Bowery people there. 
Maori type people in. Now, who ran the mission? And, well, I just read something about by Ebby about that, the mission. Nell just sent up to me Ebby's accounting of these days. And he said it wasn't run by the Oxford group, but I thought that it was run by the Oxford group. I always had, but he said it wasn't. Ebby is to me a mysterious figure in this book and in Bill's life. Did Ebby, in effect, really save Bill? What, is, what was Bill's attitude toward Ebby? Well, Bebe, um, Bill felt very, very grateful to Ebby, and he went all out to, to help him. But I don't know what you mean. I think maybe Ebby, be, um, maybe Ebby saved Bill just as much as you were talking about my changing Marty Mann's life. It wasn't really us that did it. I mean, it was, we were the channel through which the, whatever what power it was, worked. We were a stepping stone. We were, that isn't a good word either. But as I say, I think he, he, Bill felt extremely fond of Abby. He was exasperated, exasperated by Abby, of course, because Abby kept Getting drunk and was a darn nuisance. The Ebby thing was just, in effect, the moral rearmament thing was a brief period on the wagon due to moral rearmament that didn't last and it didn't work because he ended up with Silkworth. Isn't that true or is it true? No, you, I don't think you've got it right. The, um, Ebby came, Ebby had been, of course, changed as, as they use the words moral, in moral rearmament. They call it a conversion, we'll say. Everything was changed. Ebby had been changed through the Oxford group. It was then called, and not Maori Alma. It wasn't yet called Maori Alma. And um, he came to Bill, and Bill drank for a while, and went to the mission, and then went to towns. And this was only in a matter of two weeks, all told, say. And then had the spiritual awakening. And then went to Maoriyama. He didn't go to Maoriyama before that. You think he would have had the religious experience if he had never gone to Maoriyama or met Ebby? Well, he had it before. Well, if he'd never met Ebby, I don't know. But he'd been to the mission. He'd obviously heard some of that Maoriyama. But that wasn't... No, they didn't talk Maoriyama. That was that was very uh, Salvation Army type of... Uh, Save your soul, brother. Uh, what? Save your soul, brother. Save, so, save your soul, brother. It was a mission, um, fundamental, um, fundamentalist. Uh, that's where Abby took him. Yes. Well, that's Abby where, the no, that's where Bill went to find Abby. Abby didn't take Bill anyplace. Well, Abby arrived at the house sober. He, the, the story, the way it goes in the book, was there was Bill happy as a clam because his old drinking buddy was coming. He trot out the gin. He was already half stewed. He had the gin bottle on the table. In came Ebby, and lo and behold, Ebby was sober. Mm-hmm. And Ebby started to preach to him, in effect, mm-hmm. and said, you got to stop this. I'm sober. You can be sober. Mm-hmm. Bill said, how did you do it? Mm-hmm. Then what? What brand, yes. What, what's your brand? What's your, how did you, <laughs> what's your brand religion, yeah. Yeah. How did it work? How, how did, who sobered you up? Mm-hmm. And, and Ebby said, what? We're all here. Uh, the Oxford group sobered me up. Mm-hmm. Come on, you want to come and get a free sample? 
And did Bill buy that stuff? Did he come home that night and say, well, I guess I'm a new man now? He, yes, he, he, but he, he didn't drink on the way home, but he did the next day. I see, so it didn't, wasn't much of an event. It wasn't much. Then what happened? Bill got up, though, and did what he, what he called gave his life to God. At that mission that night? At that mission that night. And Ebby was scared because... Straight Billy Graham type thing. Come yes, forward, right. brother. That's give your life exactly to God. that. Yes, sir, I'm with God. That was exactly. Right, okay. He went and did that and he stayed sober a day. And stayed sober a day. And um, Ebby was afraid to have him go because he thought it was to get up to the front and then started to pull his coattails back. Ebby didn't want him to go. He didn't want him to go. He thought he was too drunk. He was dead drunk when he did this. Well, no, because he had he was dead drunk when he came in. But Abby had given him coffee and beans and something else. And they had some kind of supper there. And he was uh, some sobered up from there. He was still under the influence when he, still said, under, when when he, he made got his decision up. for God. Sure, so he was still under the influence. And Abby was scared and he tried to hold on to his coattails, but wasn't any good. Bill got up there and spoke. But Ebby said that it was... Bill never remembered what it said. Mm-hmm. And often asked Ebby, but Ebby didn't remember too much except that it seemed like a, a reasonable um, talk. Not too long. And then they went home. I mean, he, he wasn't too bad when he got up. And made more or less sense and he phoned me though which was a good sign to remember to phone me and said that he had something great to tell me that he'd be home in just a minute and not to worry so he was home not too long so that was fine but it only lasted that day that he got drunk again Tell me... But did not go to over the Oxford group anymore. Yeah. Uh, then what happened? He just it finally is. ended up back at Silkworth again. Yes, that's right. He took... In other words, it was really just another one of his normal visits to Silkworth. He had three. Well, no. This this was one to still... He was thinking about this thing all the time. This wonderful thing that had happened to Abby. And why couldn't he have it? So he went there to clear his... Own thinking. So he went to towns, yes, to get clear his own thinking. And this was long before he needed to go. Um, by so that... This um, was the one where he had this, the bottles of beer going across town. Yes. He wasn't really that far gone or sodden that he needed to go. That no, but, was no because it, it, it hadn't been more than maybe six weeks or a month before he'd been there. Since he'd been there before. And while he was there, he then had the religious experience. Then Abby came to see him there, too. After the religious experience. No, before the religious experience. And after. But he came before the... And he just told him the simple principles and didn't try to preach to him. So that's what Bill says in this. And then how long did Abby stay sober before Abby came to drive? Two years. Two years. And he'd come, he'd come to live at the house. Did Abby join AA as soon as AA existed? Well, he considered that he was, um, yes. Because he was, he was Oxford Group. Oxford Group and AA were two separate things. 
Well, we considered ourselves Oxford Group for quite a while in New York. The AA did. The AA considered themselves Oxford Group. And in Akron, they did for several years consider themselves Oxford Group. So, and not AA. So Bill was really joining Abby instead of Abby joining Bill. In a sense. In a sense, yes. Yes. And then Abby fell off the wagon as an AA. Mm hmm. That must have been, that must have been exasperating. The guy who made it all possible for Bill. Oh, that was terrible. It seemed like the end of the world. Because it discredited the group. Mm hmm. And if Abby couldn't stay sober, why did anybody else? So. What is well, the I mystery of AA? Why does it work? Well, I think there's always an X factor. Oh, this is this. Well, again, I may be naive and old-fashioned and everything, but there is something beyond just man's own willpower. And Bill never and tries to explain that he understood a complete way that, that it worked. I mean, I, I found that very charming that Bill would look and somebody said, "Bill, why does this work?" Yes. And the man, the inventor. Yes. Said, so "Damn if I know." Yeah, it's like electric Thomas. Edison saying about the electric light. I don't know, but it lights up. Yeah. And it's, it's wonderfully disarming. Did yes. you ever hear him say that to anybody? Oh, yes, yes. I've heard him say that. So no, he, he never did know why it worked. It just worked. A power greater than themselves. Yeah. Right. That's what he believed. I hope you have enjoyed this time with Lois Wilson, the co-founder of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.